Welcome to 96 Greers, a podcast where we watch every feature film with Judy Greer in the cast. I'm Reg Lynn. And I'm Patrick Rapole. So when we started this podcast, um, we recorded our first full episode uh, in December around Christmas time, and we started with a Christmas movie, Pottersville. Yeah. I'm the kind of person who likes doing seasonally appropriate things. I'm also the kind of person who likes to plan, so I have thought about how this podcast is going to progress, what future episodes are going to be like, and when they are, and I've tried to find uh, seasonally uh, appropriate parallels within the movies. Yeah. And this was one that I didn't really think about. It's just a happy coincidence that we are recording in the middle of Gemini season and we have a film about twins. Oh, I didn't realize. <laughs> I, I didn't that, that that didn't occur to me until a couple of days ago. So I was like, oh, very good subconscious. It's also our tenth episode, and we're kind of going with a big movie this time that we were both really yes. excited to talk about. Yeah, yeah. It's it's always it's always good to to do something fancy um, on a multiple of ten, and uh, we're both very excited to talk about adaptation, a two thousand two movie directed by Spike Jones and uh, written by Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman. Yeah, sorta. Um, Sort of, sort of. Well, well, we'll get we'll we'll get into that. This is a movie that uh, I believe I saw in college and fell in love with it uh, right away. Um, just just thought it was the bee's knees. This is the the second teaming up of Spike Jones directing Charlie Kaufman writing mm-hmm. um, after being John Malkovich. I think for me, being John Malkovich was maybe like the first like weird arty movie that i saw that kind of connected oh yeah with me um you know I, w- I was a pretty pretentious kid so i would go to the library and i would rent movies from you know like like whatever lists of great movies i could find so i saw like rashomon and yohimbo and um, Seventh Seal and and like other Bergman and like Eight and a Half and I just watched all these movies and I was like okay I guess these are great movies but being John Malkovich was just the sweet spot for me I I have a memory of seeing it in theaters oh I don't know if that would have been true because ninety nine you were I was uh fifteen right. So I don't know if maybe I snuck in with a friend and we, because it's a rated R movie. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think being John Malkovich was like a big turning point for me. And I was like, okay, I think this is the kind of movie I like. I think this is like the thing that I'm really into. Um, and then so when Adaptation came out, it was like, oh, b- back in the saddle, baby. Here we go. And I watched it. Uh, so you were immediately a Charlie Kaufman fan. Oh, yeah. Saw so Adaptation um, fell in love with it, just thought it was excellent. Um, so I was nervous to to come back to it because I, I hadn't seen it since I was in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've watched so many more movies in this time and, you know, um, started thinking about movies in different ways. So this was, um, I was both excited for this episode, but also a little trepidatious. Was not sure how it was going to... Uh, Shake out. How, how about you? What, what is your experience with adaptation before sitting down to do this podcast? Uh, I definitely watched it in high school. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I knew who Charlie Kaufman was, but nevertheless, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Adaptation, and Being John Malkovich were all movies that meant a lot to me in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, being John Malkovich, I had never heard, Not only had I never heard of the movie Being John Malkovich, I didn't know who John Malkovich was when I heard the title. Yeah, I didn't either. So I thought it was just a dude, like a character in the movie. Yeah. Um, but that played on Comedy Central a lot. At some point in the early aughts, 
Comedy Central played a lot of weird independent comedies that mm-hmm. were only like sort of uh, had jokes, you know, like they would right. play a Royal Tenenbaums, they would play a Being John Malkovich, they would play a uh, Road to Wellville or whatever. <laughs> Um, Did you see Being John Malkovich before you saw Adaptation? Do you remember no. the order? Oh, okay. I, I saw okay. I saw Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and then I saw Adaptation, mm-hmm. and then I saw Being John Malkovich. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like didn't connect them, wasn't really thinking about Charlie Kaufman as anyone, but I definitely knew that I felt smart when I watched <laughs> movies that were self-referential and like yeah. identified tropes, and yeah. then I would be like, ah, yes, I know what a trope is, you know? Uh, You know, Scream was one of my favorite movies growing up. But like uh, when I saw Scream for the first time, I was 10 and I I didn't even realize it was like supposed to be postmodern. I just thought it was Mm -hmm. so scary. Um, But, you know, eventually you pick up on these things and you get you get to like the self reflexivity of it all. And I also had like a similar is adaptation actually good or did I just like that it was like a movie about making movies and about like here's what a good movie is and here's what a bad movie is and here's why Hollywood sucks and here's why you're smart for knowing that and like yeah yeah because this was also the time period I mean for I mean for me where I thought like American Beauty was an amazing movie mm -hmm. and now I'm just like oh it's about like like a like a rich white guy going through a midlife crisis and he creeps out on a teenage girl like cool there's there's so many movies that got nominated for a bunch of Oscars around this time that you go back and and they are the most mediocre things yeah. you've ever. I mean, that, that's. I guess that's true of all eras. But oh, for sure. Certainly, because this was the era when I started paying attention to that, they stand out more to me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and and definitely the the more movies you see, um, the more you kind of refine what it is about movies that makes you want to sit motionless in a dark room for hours on end. Mm-hmm. Um, the the more you kind of whittle down into into what you like and going back to those movies where it's like everything was new and fresh and exciting suddenly it's like maybe not so yeah so going into this movie was a little bit uh that's a damn plastic bag sir <laughs> exactly yeah 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 west bentley you yeah. pretentious fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but before we tell you how we feel about the movie adaptation i'm gonna give you a plot summary New Yorker staff writer Susan Orlean writes The Orchid Thief, a nonfiction book that starts with her interviews with Florida orchid poacher John LaRoche, but sprawls into other topics and lacks a traditional narrative. The book gets optioned for a movie. The job for adapting the book goes to screenwriter Charlie Kaufman, whose breakthrough film Being John Malkovich is still in production. Charlie struggles to adapt The Orchid Thief for the screen while also dealing with shyness, self-loathing, and his doofy twin brother Donald, who champions a more conventional approach to screenwriting. Oh, so good. Um, was was so was so happy, was so relieved too, where it's like, okay, okay, 21-year-old me was not a complete dingus. <laughs> right. I mean, I was an absolutely a complete dingus when I saw this and liked this, but it turns out this movie is good for reasons I didn't realize when I was 16. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this, this, it was also interesting watching it this time around because um, we both, we didn't, 
we didn't maybe read the Orchid Thief. I listened to the abridged audiobook of the Orchid Thief while I was doing filing at work. So yes. I kind of read the Orchid Thief. I walked around as uh, a narrator said the names of plants and I zoned out not knowing what any of those plants looked like. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe, maybe we didn't do like a, a literary deep dive into the work of Susan Orlean, but it was it was a, a an enriching experience to, to revisit the book before watching the it movie. It changed, it definitely changed the way I look at the movie. And then, the funny thing was, uh, I, I did the audiobook of The Orchid Thief before I watched Adaptation mm-hmm. for this podcast, and this was the first time I'd seen Adaptation in like 15 years yeah. or something yeah, like same. that. Um, and watching Adaptation changed the way I thought about the book. There was, mm-hmm. there was actually both going on where I realized that Adaptation was doing some things that I didn't before once I understood the structure of The Orchid Thief. Mm-hmm. And then once I saw Adaptation, Charlie Kaufman, in his sort of work of adapting this to a different medium, mm-hmm. pointed out things that the book was doing that I didn't realize. Um, and so they are actually very good companion pieces. Which is interesting because um, the screenplay did come about from, from Kaufman's real life experience of uh, getting this job and then having writer's block so um it was very much true to his own experience of, of trying to sit down and uh, as as they call it in the movie uh sprawling new yorker style shit yeah uh which is true the book the book goes into i mean it does it does follow um susan orlean uh staff writer for the new yorker hearing about this uh, john laroche uh a, a man who has poached uh, endangered orchids and he's involved in in this trial and he's arguing that um, that he was a consultant for um, some seminal men who were doing the actual harvesting and, and because they are a part of the seminal tribe they have their rights to um, to take these orchids and so she just went down to to observe and, and write about this and then it you know it kind of goes from LaRoche's story into you know her adventures going into the swamp and, and seeking this rare ghost orchid and also it goes into um, you know uh, the the development of Florida and like what does Florida mean in the imagination and like you know um, goes into kind of the issues that like the Seminole tribe faces and goes into issues of of poaching and the the entire world of orchid collectors and mm-hmm. all these all these weird you know eccentric uh people that that she meets along the way and um yeah it really does just go all over the place it's it's not it's not by any means a traditional narrative and the movie does absolutely reflect that something that i noticed this time watching the movie was uh as as much as she is going from like character study of La Roche to uh, history of development in South Florida to you know this that and the other thing um, adaptation the the flavor of genre changes up quite a bit in this movie it's not just uh, it's not just the 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 famous third act where it it morphs into uh, a real like a, like boilerplate thriller but also um there's the relationship between charlie and um amelia who has a crush on and and things get very tender and romantic in the scenes between them i also noticed that the scenes between charlie and donald often have like a a horror thriller kind of tone to them like like the the way that the scenes are lit and the way that the way that the blocking is in in the scene where you'll have Charlie in the foreground and then you'll have Donald standing in the doorway and he's kind of backlit and shadowy Mm -hmm. even though it's just Donald being a complete goof 
hack screenwriter wannabe and Very Charlie wanting to strangle Nicolas him. Very funny Nicolas Cage yeah. performance oh as God. Donald specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just the sort of guileless charm of Donald Kaufman is overwhelming at points. But I yes. mean, uh, when you look at this movie, like it's not merely I'm going to invent a second character so I can have someone for my mm-hmm. for you know my stand-in to talk to instead mm-hmm. of having internal monologue. It is very much supposed, you know, Donald Kaufman. He wants to be a screenwriter, and yeah. he decides his genre is thriller, and yeah. he writes the most cliche serial killer, multiple personality thing. But yeah. that is also what Charlie Kaufman is playing with with adaptation. Yeah, where Donald Kaufman is very specifically this alternate personality. So the way he appears as an almost it's almost similar to something like Edward Norton and Brad Pitt in Fight Club or whatever. Yeah. He appears when he is at his most like psychologically vulnerable uh, and at the most doubtful to like pop up and sort of be the voice of commercial reason or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like like his his id or the devil on his shoulder. He goes to Robert McKee's screenwriting seminar and then just comes back with these pearls of of wisdom of how to write a a mainstream successful hit (laughs) but does it in the most um sweet natured chipper way which is which is not at all what you would expect from uh the voice of temptation you know he's just sort of um happy to be here and happy to learn this new thing and boy he's gonna be a success and then and then his his story ends up diverging so wildly from Charlie's who Charlie just struggling with the idea of like how do I make a movie that's just about flowers I just want it to be about flowers and meanwhile Donald finds a girlfriend and he's hanging out with Catherine Keener and and his script gets optioned like right away and well it's specifically that dumb affable thing is Hollywood Mm. Uh, like that is the Hollywood thing. That is the schmoozer. That is the, Hey babe, let's do lunch. That's everything's going breezy. Put on your sunglasses. We live Mm -hmm. in paradise sort of vibe, Mm -hmm. uh, that he represents is like the industry that Charlie Kaufman has found himself enmeshed in, despite the fact that he doesn't quite know how to fit in. Yeah. When I was a teenager and Mm -hmm. I saw adaptation, I really did see like Donald represents Hollywood, which represents bad films. Yeah. Charlie represents artist, which represents good films. Right. Originality equals good. Mm-hmm. Uh, structure and genre equals bad. People who like the kind of movies that Donald makes mm-hmm. are dumb. People who like the kind of movies that Charlie makes, which by the way, that's you because you're the one yeah. watching adaptation yeah. and enjoying it. Yeah. That makes you smart. It was a very like black and white. Yeah. Um, this movie is not about like the struggle to be a great artist in the uh, sort of facile um, and superficial world of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. It is actually a lot more nuanced and a lot more personal. um, And that was sort of the thing that surprised me most this time I watched it. (laughs) Um, I agree with you. The first time I saw it, it was about pap that is just the the lowest common denominator kind of film versus something that's that's new and original and, and groundbreaking. But something I noticed this time around watching Adaptation, which definitely uh, blurred that that binary, is in the movie, the relationship between Donald and Charlie borrows so much from the play True West by Sam Shepard. Huh. <laughs> it was... It was shocking to me so true west i don't i don't know if there's a film version um but it's uh it's it's a very popular uh play that is um often staged uh true west takes place in the 80s it was written in the 80s it is about two brothers their names are austin and lee 
Austin is a professional screenwriter who is working on a script for his next film. Uh, and his brother Lee is uh, a, a rough and tumble kind of guy. He works on on ranches in the Southwest, and uh, may, maybe he's up to some illegal illegal activity. But he's um, you know Austin is very like urbane and educated. Um, Lee is like he's rough and he's a bully, um, and they both end up at their mother's house. And then Austin's producer shows up. And Lee just turns on the charm, starts schmoozing with the guy, um, and says, "You know, oh, I could tell you stories about the West. You you want to you want a Western? I can tell you stories about the West because that's my life, and like I'm one of the last original authentic cowboys." And the producer says, "Great, write up a treatment. I want to see it." And then Lee strong arms Austin into helping him write this treatment. There is a scene in the play which is hilarious it's also one that that you do a lot in acting class where austin is at the typewriter and lee is like dictating this movie to him and the scene is he's got his hero who's being chased by the bad guys and, and they're going across the texas panhandle and both in their trucks with their gooseneck trailers holding their horses and they're chasing each other across the desert and then the protagonist realizes one he's in tornado country and two he's running out of gas so he pulls the truck over and he gets out and he gets on his horse and the bad guy gets on his horse and then they go chasing each other on their horses towards the border and austin is just like lee they run out of gas that's the most hackneyed idea and that is exact almost exactly like the scene where donald is talking about like the motors versus horses chase yeah. in the movie that he's writing and i was just like oh, oh my god i fucking i have done this scene in film in in acting class <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, this is True West, um, which is also um, I mean, I, I guess it is a bit deconstructionist because it is a, more about like the writing of a script than it is about like a more traditional story. Uh, but it is also about like authenticity versus artificiality and like, sure. who has the right to tell a story. All all movies about making movies or all books about writing books or whatever, they call to the readers or the audience's attention mm -hmm. that there is the fiction of like what happens in fiction and these are the tropes of fiction. Yeah. And then there's my fiction, which by its very nature of calling out what happens in other fiction is sort of aligning itself more with the real world. Mm -hmm. But it's all fiction. Yeah. <laughs> that is an essential postmodern uh, angle to all works about creating works, mm -hmm. which is this is about. And to an extent, that's what The Orchid Thief is also about because Susan Orlean is very much working within the established, uh, you can call it a genre if you want to, of new journalism. Yeah. Uh, when you read The Orchid Thief, it's not dissimilar to reading essays by Joan Didion mm -hmm. or, you know, something by Thomas Wolfe, something mm -hmm. like that, where uh, these journalists have sort of inserted themselves into the narrative. They, they are sort of give themselves leeway to use fanciful language. At some point, she mentions, like, leaving the swamp. She goes, I walked approximately 5,000 miles back to the car, which mm -hmm. is, like, not... A that's not reporting mm -hmm. that is being expressive for the point yeah. for the purpose of getting a point across and so like even in its day which new journalism is not anything new by the time the orchid thief comes out this mm -hmm. is all 60s and 70s that this sort of all gets 
starts happening and bundled together in its day people pointed at it and said that's narcissistic yeah that's that's solipsistic yeah that's you know pathetic like all the things that charlie kaufman says about his own screenplay yeah is all were all criticisms that were actually la- uh levied at new journalism mm-hmm. and new journalism because of the way it mixes fiction and non-fiction it uh calls to mind what is real and what it isn't and it sort of yeah. challenges you as an audience member and it, and it makes the writer a character it makes and it, you very very aware of the piece being written so in the way that charlie kaufman has made this film or has written the film because spike jones is the director mm-hmm. um he is in fact capturing new journalism mm. you know that like that is one of the adaptations he does is he yeah. takes the new journalism form and he applies it to screenplays which mm-hmm. in which it is way more rare um and and it just stands out so much more. You know, you read the right stuff and it doesn't strike you as something radical or crazy, but like adaptation, you watch it and you're like, this is so bizarre. So he puts his artistic failures in the movie. He puts his false starts in the movie. You, you see the sequence that starts with the title is, is Los Angeles 40 million years earlier. And, and you see, you know, you know, the comet hitting and bacteria turning into plants, turning into dinosaurs and, you know, ev- evolution happening and then a baby being born and then Charlie Kaufman. Uh, and then, later in the movie um, you see his his fevered inspiration for this very scene that you saw 15 minutes earlier cutting to how completely devastated he is that he came up with such a stupid idea. The best edit in the movie is the absolute rush. He is vibrating with excitement and energy when he realizes that what he needs to do is to capture the entirety of existence in his screenplay Mm -hmm. and he's talking into his tape recorder and mid-sentence it cuts from him talking into his tape recorder to him listening back the lighting has changed yeah Uh, everything gets a lot colder and 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 he just looks totally dejected and that to me is like one of the most perfect uh cinematic moments about writing ever which is just like (laughs) when you're in it you're like i am a god and then when you go back you're like i am fucking trash (laughs) It's interesting how um, being self-deprecating and feeling self-loathing and neurotic is so much a part of the character that Nicolas Cage plays, but is is also just a hallmark of how the movie is written and how it presents itself. You really get the sense from the way that the film is structured that Charlie Kaufman doesn't want to romanticize himself. Right. Uh, and to an extent, this is also what Susan Orlean does. But Susan Orlean is is not just so viciously self-deprecating. Right. But she does, like, start the book going, like, I had to learn more about John LaRoche and his trial. And where that goes is, eh, not much. You know, they were all acquitted. They didn't get their orchids back. He never, he didn't work with the Seminole tribe after that. He quit. Yeah studying orchids she sets up the book as like my quest to find the ghost orchid to finally understand why people so that frustration is sort of implicit in the sprawling nature of the book yeah if 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 this was if this was a story about a sensational court case the court case would take up more than like uh 10 percent of the book which is what it does in the in the in the uh the orchid thief right right um i did notice that there are some parallels in the movie between Susan and Charlie. Part of it is his struggle as a character to be respectful to her as the writer of the source material. He wants to to show her an end product that will make her happy, make her proud. Um, but also just how they are 
you know, they, they, they both do most of the voiceover narration. Um, his is, you know, very tortured and, and neurotic and repetitive and internal. And hers is just flowing and effortless and writerly because she already has her finished product. And because <laughs> she has the grace of Meryl Streep. Yes. Yeah. Th- there's some moments in her narration where it's practically ASMR, <laughs> just, just the way that, that, that just her her voice just sort of flows out of her in this in this gentle intimate kind of way um but you know they're both they're both dealing with uh, a film executive played by tilda swinton they're both doing like the business lunch thing i think it's probably i think it might be said in the same restaurant but that was just like an interesting parallel where tilda's just like that john laroche is such a funny character to both of them yeah um and also just how they're they're both they both have this sort of whole in their heart and they're both searching for something and don't really know how to find it um and are both kind of questing through their art um but can't seem to uh to make the connections in their in their lives that they want to um Susan Orlean was a guest on a podcast called Feeling Seen uh which is hosted by uh Jordan Cruciola in each episode uh, interviews someone about a movie because they see themselves as a character. So for Susan Orlean, uh, it was quite literal, uh, which is very different from most of the people who who Jordan interviews. It, it, and it was interesting uh, listening to this interview where you have Susan Orlean, staff writer for The New Yorker, beautiful writer. I thought I thought that uh, the the flow and the imagery in Orca Thief was was great, uh, but. Every- <laughs> But every time she's asked a question about, you know, what is it like to see, you know, Meryl Streep show up on screen and say, hi, I'm Susan Orlean. She just kept saying it was crazy. It was crazy. Like she just kept using that word. And and I don't even I don't fault her. I'm not saying that as criticism. I'm, I, I'm just saying, could you even describe that experience? Could you even describe the experience of like writing an, an essay from your personal experience that then turns into a novel that then turns into a script that then turns in and not just any script, but this like crazy metafiction that then gets nominated for a ton of Oscars. That must've been just the most like mind blowing experience. So it's just so funny to hear her. And, and this was a very recent interview too. I mean, she's had like decades to kind of process this, but she's still just going, it was crazy. <laughs> Susan Orlean, the the real person, said of herself in this interview that uh, she uh, she mostly worked with Spike Jones and like the costumers. You know, um, she didn't talk to Charlie Kaufman before the script was completed, and she didn't talk to Meryl Streep until after her filming was done um but that she saw so much of herself in that portrayal and and in the movie and that she had some some realizations about both the book and about herself as as an individual um from watching adaptation where um she hadn't realized how much like loneliness and longing was was in the book and um she even said that uh watching the Susan Orlean character and how she goes about her daily life um, that she didn't realize until watching that movie that in real life she was actually very unhappy in her marriage and it was passionless and uh, she ended up divorcing the man that she was married to at the time that she wrote the book um, and that watching adaptation was part of her coming to the realization that she needed to make that big life change which was kind of fascinating so I can understand I mean why she would just sit there and go it was crazy <laughs> 
Um, so you brought up the way that the movie parallels, uh, or how, I guess, specifically the way Charlie Kaufman in his script parallels himself with Susan Orlean. Yeah. Um, and I feel like my big picture, like, and there is no one word that you can say, like, adaptation is about blank. Because the right. thing that makes this movie so great is it is so successfully about so many different things. Yeah. Um, but like the thing that really struck me this time watching it was that I, I the movie is so much about his envy. It is about mm. it is about an artist envy for another medium mm-hmm. because like in the realm of nonfiction books, the Orchid Thief is not like some radical groundbreaking like oh my god what she does with structure like right. the Orchid Thief is not the equivalent of being John Malkovich. You know no. what I mean? It is it, it it exists in like we said the new journalism sort of school like mm-hmm. it exists in a very well trod territory mm-hmm. of a kind of book but you try to turn that into a movie and all of a sudden it becomes untenable because they're just yeah. fundamentally different mediums mm-hmm. but it's not just so it's not just that he's envious of her ability to like disregard a three act structure or anything like that. He's envious of everyone around him. He's envious of all the men around him. There's like so much masculine energy in this movie that is just like people who are confident and able to talk to women. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, it's also about her envy at John LaRoche. um, Who has this passion. Who has this passion. Yeah. Um, And the, the thing that I found so funny about it that I didn't really realize is that in this movie and in, in the, in the orchid thief, Susan Orlean is like a little bit scandalized that John LaRoche can be like such an expert on something. And so just dedicate 110% of his life into a single thing, whether it's turtles or restoring old mirrors or mm-hmm. fish or fossils or like any of the number of previous interests that uh, he has sort of left by the road. Yeah. Um, that is the job of a New Yorker journalist. You go somewhere and you make them the most interesting thing in the world. And everything you do is about research and about being absorbed in their life and about the world they exist in. And then you move on. Susan Orlean did not become someone who then wrote about plants for the rest of her life. She's a reporter. Like she has yeah. all sorts of different beats. And she is actually like, this is something that I didn't realize about the book, The Orchid Thief, until I saw Adaptation, Mm -hmm. is that she is John LaRoche. She is someone who goes somewhere and becomes totally absorbed and and like learns everything there is to know about orchids and the history of collecting orchids and all these plant people and all these plants. And then like, she realizes, I I don't care about seeing the ghost orchid anymore. I just want to go home. Yeah. Um, Th- that 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 is an interesting point. I had I hadn't thought about that. Where, where she does have this very parallel experience because of her job. I think I think the difference is that um, as a journalist, she's doing that to sustain her life. It's not something that she is surrendering her life to. She I think she I think in in the uh, in the feeling scene interview, she she specifically uses that term uh, that term surrendering your life and I think as a as a journalist like you, I mean I mean you're, you're you're right she does these deep dives she does these like this obsessive research and I, I mean she she go she talks in the book about the experience of going into the swamp and it sounds like an absolute nightmare I mean I mean she talks about having to throw out her clothing when she comes out after an afternoon because they're so disgusting and then go, then going right out to Kmart and buying you know several pairs of the items that she just threw out because she's going to go back in. And I was just sitting in my car, just like completely disgusted thinking about like the, the mud in her sneakers. And that to me sounds like surrendering your life. Like, I mean, but it's it's not her, her, it's not, it's not her life. It's, it's, it's just for the sake. I mean, she's doing it. It's her job. Right. But like, 
there's a lot of different jobs a reporter can have that don't involve running out into the swamp for two years to um to write this book about orchids um that's true um but i think i i think that her doing that job and um i mean i mean again this is also takes place in the early 90s where journalists were still able to make a living being journalists um you know, uh, again, it, th- that is her job and it's an intense job and it's an extreme job, but it's not her life. You know, she's not like she's not like the people who she's talking about who um, spend, you, you know, spend all of their discretionary income to have the perfect greenhouses and have, you know, um, like alarms and orchid sitters. And it's just like all they think about. And it's like it's like their whole like like the time that they have and the space that they have for themselves to be themselves. It's all about the orchids. But the, but she also does talk to a lot of people who have made it their job because yeah. it because it sustains yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but more to 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 where uh, what I was thinking about this is her um, envy of these people is misplaced because it's so clear that she has the thing that sustains her and Uh gives her life. And she has the thing that her life is built around, which is reporting. Mm -hmm. Um, Charlie Kaufman also has this, and I don't necessarily mean screenwriting. The problem with this, the very first thing we hear in this movie is his internal monologue. And it is all his anxiety and worries. And it is all just all the things he hates about himself. And it's all the worries about himself. And it's about himself, himself, himself. The problem with Charlie Kaufman is his one obsession is Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. Who is the protagonist of every single Charlie Kaufman movie? It's Charlie Kaufman. (laughs) I think he is he is envious of of people whose obsession isn't themselves, but like the same way that these people are are obsessed with orchids and are surrendering their entire lives to capturing these orchids, like he is obsessed with himself and yeah. he has built a career. Out yeah, of it. yeah. And so there's these like parallel sort of uh, misplaced uh, envy, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, because he also has made a very uh, good career. I mean, I don't know how much money he's making, but he is Charlie Kaufman. We we he's, both he's know his known. name. Yeah, he's notable. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that he's doing just fine. Like he has made a very good career out of his obsession himself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Something else that was very interesting watching um, watching adaptation, and I think one of the reasons that um, I was uh, that I was a bit nervous about returning to it and why I was sort of doubtful that I would like it again is because as much as I adore being John Malkovich and as much as I adore adaptation I really feel like it's diminishing returns with him agree um I I haven't liked his last two movies really I'm thinking of ending things had its moments and I think I really cottoned to it because the way that he portrays uh, Jesse Plemons' character's mind working is like so much how my mind works. Mm. And so I, I did relate to it a lot. But at the same time, I was just like, man, how many times, <laughs> how many times can, can can you can you write a movie about like a dude who is who is awkward and introverted and puts women on a pedestal? Like, right. <laughs> right. No, I mean, I, I, I like all of his movies in that I think all of his movies are just like very worthy, fascinating objects yes. that despite yeah. oh, the yeah. fact that he yeah. only makes movies about himself, they are all so distinct from yeah. each other and from all other films <laughs> that it's just like, I'm, 
he's like an artist I'm glad to follow, mm-hmm. but like I just don't have the patience to be passionate about it. I'm thinking of ending things or Anomalisa. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, Synecdoche, New York is a long time ago, but that's the last movie that I really think is like works totally um, in the, but like Eternal Sunshine has really diminished. I think that's less to do with him than just the miscasting of Jim Carrey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, shout out to adaptation, perhaps just because of the subject matter. It's like the first sad sack uh, Charlie Kaufman protagonist who actually is as pathetic <laughs> as like, like he would go on later to just ha- be Charlie Kaufman. And that gave him like, there's no version of early aughts, 1999, Charlie Kaufman, who's getting Synecdoche, New York made. That right. movie is just like way too out there. Right. With being John Malkovich, he had written that script, um, quite some time before it got picked up and he'd shopped it around Hollywood. Uh, the only, and basically the reason that it got, made was he pitched it to Francis Ford Coppola's production company and Spike Jones was Coppola's son-in-law at the time because that was when he was married to Sophia Coppola and um, Francis Ford Coppola was just like Spike do you want to do this movie and Spike said eh. <laughs> I don't know if he said it exactly like that but well, uh, which, he which, skated into the room and he was like tubular and he skated back out which brings me to another thing and I this movie is not as enthusiastic about being about this as some of the uh, the other sort of themes and topics it addresses but i do mm-hmm. think this is still in this movie um it turns out that like you no one makes movies where nothing happens like turns out being john malkovich is not a movie where nothing happens right um you know uh, uh eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is not a movie where no one learns anything and nothing happens you know charlie kaufman doesn't even make these movies charlie kaufman wants to be the kind of person because he's envious yeah. of susan Orlean. he wants to be the kind of person who can make a movie that's just about the beauty of flowers but the thing about donald kaufman um and to you know by proxy robert mckee is that they're kind of right. Like, you know, like structures actually do exist for a reason and character arcs exist for a reason. And like the the reason why, you know, a being John Malkovich um, hit the way it did, the reason why adaptation hit the way it did, the reason why Eternal Sunshine hit the way it did is because as outlandish as they are, they are still recognizably comedies. They are yeah. still recognizably in a genre. Yeah. Um, they are still things that an audience, uh, a more mainstream audience can look at. This movie was not like a massive hit, but it did definitely make its money back. And it came out in an era when video sales were a big part of that too. Yeah. And, and it was th- nominated for tons of Oscars. Right. Won a few as well. And, you know, I think these days being nominated for a ton of Oscars doesn't really mean much no. in terms of financial success, but that does. But um, like he wasn't making Synecdoche, New York or mm-hmm. Anomalisa or I'm thinking of ending things back then right. um, because he couldn't. And so like there, part of this is the, the movie is sarcastic and the movie thinks that all of the thriller stuff is totally bullshit. And mm-hmm. it's, and it's, and it's just sort of laughing at it, but like there is a truth to things happen to people every day. And yeah. like things have yeah. stakes and a movie where nothing happens and no one learns anything and no one grows. And like, that's just, that that wasn't the kind of movies he was even making. That's that's true, and, and I think um, Brian Cox, who plays uh, Robert McKee, the the screenwriter seminar giver, um, who has is in like two scenes and is amazing in both of them. But yeah, he he has that monologue where he's just like, nothing happens. People people die every day. People cheat on their wives. People go hungry. Um, 
And, but then also you have Charlie who keeps saying to himself, I've wasted my life. I've wasted my life where he, where he's just wanting to write this film where it's like nothing happens and nothing gets resolved and no one learns anything and people get frustrated because that's what his life is. Right. I, I, I have to say as a writer, I've definitely had that problem myself when sitting down to write scripts where I'm just like, and then the character, oh, I'm the most like timid person and I never get in fights. So how do I write two characters having a fight? Cause I don't know what a fight looks like. <laughs> Oh no. Um, so I, that part I definitely related to, but also when I was, when I was watching, um, that scene where he's just like, you, you can't write a movie where nothing happens. There are, there are movies like that. Good movies, well-regarded movies where there's no real narrative arc or there's no like characters learning big life lessons. Sure. Um, there's the Italian neorealist. I just did a pod, I just did an episode of Director's Club podcast about Simon Liang, uh, you know, who's, who's one of the Taiwan's, uh, foremost, uh, um, purveyors of slow cinema right. and when he's making his movies like like goodbye dragon in the, these movies where but the, these are movies that don't have those traditional narratives they don't have those tra- traditional character arcs they don't have those traditional resolutions when is he making those kind of movies because i know i know simon liang also made made some movies that are a bit more traditionally structured pretty much immediately i want to say okay. his first film is traditionally structured and by the time you get to vive l'amour it's uh, he's obscuring character psychologies to the point where you're not really getting anything about growth because uh-huh. you don't know who the people are to begin with. Like you, it, okay. the, the, their motivations and their feelings on any given moment are largely a mystery. Do you remember like what year that movie came out? That was 94. Like, like it's possible that, that that would have been sort of in Kaufman's mind as like, okay, well movies like this do exist. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I would say there are a lot of antecedents to Chiming Liang yeah. that, that would probably be more in uh, Charlie Kaufman's mm-hmm. mind. Um, one, uh, <laughs> one weird part of this movie is that it ends with the song happy together by the turtles playing right. over a, a time-lapse footage of plants, re- um, in a flower box in LA, yeah. which is uh, a total ripoff of the ending of the movie happy together. Uh, Wong Kar Wai was a international art house star in a way mm-hmm. that chiming Liang never has been. So right. like. I think I think Wong Kar Wai movie like Days of Being Wild is yeah. is a more direct example of a movie where characters are totally static. Um, but yeah, or all, in the mood for love. Yeah. But all of that aside, like Charlie Kaufman found his genre. Yeah. You so when he makes a movie about Robert McKee saying everyone has a genre and you have to find what your genre is, um, that is not like. I'm putting up the example of things that's totally bullshit and false right. so we could all point to it and laugh at it. That's him feeling like a failure because he recognizes how much of that actually exists in him. Yeah. Like that's why Donald is this like sort of split personality instead of just this totally separate character. <laughs> just so cheerfully going, my genre is thriller. What's yeah. <laughs> yours? <laughs> Mom said it was psychologically taught. Oh, um, that, scene, that scene was interesting because I think if um, you have... Charlie Kaufman, who is like doing the Charlie Kaufman thing, which doesn't really have a a, a genre box to be plopped into, mm-hmm. um, but just because of of how he's presenting himself as uh, and his personality as someone who who doesn't have 
uh, a lot of confidence in himself where um, not being able not being able to be put in a box is both like a point of pride but also another point of self-loathing um, where where it, it does kind of become this really uh, like like conflicting kind of thing where where he does have this yeah this like uh, um, this uh, this temptation, but also this like aspiration in Donald of you know oh I can just blithely blithely go along and find my place in life. I mean it, it's almost like uh, like like uh, like Donald has the creative equivalent of like a house in the suburbs and a picket fence and two kids. You know right. Uh, <laughs> um, Charlie Kaufman started off as a sitcom writer, right? He was one of the staff writers for the Dana Carvey Show, which only lasted for a season. Um, he kind of. Tr- tried to be a sitcom writer um he also had a writing partner um who he wrote a bunch of movies with that none of which were produced Mm. um so i mean he started working in the 80s but um i I mean this is just based on, on reading his wikipedia article he didn't really find any like like he didn't really find success until being John Malkovich. Sure, yeah, and and certainly the Dana Carvey show, which I think was canceled after like four episodes, does not count as success. Yeah, uh, despite yeah, exactly. the uh, the alumni of people who worked on it. This movie is a movie. I I do bristle a bit at the idea that Charlie Kaufman is someone outside of genre because this movie has jokes. The uh, Charlie Kaufman in this movie, the character Charlie Kaufman in this movie says no one's ever made a movie about flowers before. And Donald goes, what about flowers for Algernon? And Charlie goes, that's not about flowers. And it's not a movie. And he goes, and then, and then Donald's response is, I never saw it. <laughs> like, like, that's a joke. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I, I think though, I think one parallel uh, that I would sort of draw between uh, Simon Lieg and uh, Charlie Kaufman is that they both, um, in their careers, have sort of whittled away anything, uh, have worked to whittle away things that are recognizable um, that you like might that might make them resemble other films. People recognize as the tropes of filmmaking and just the way that things are constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get to something like I'm thinking of ending things, that really does feel like a movie without genre. That that really does feel like a challenge. It, yeah, yeah, it is. It is very um, distilled. I think. I think. I, I'm thinking of ending things is an adaptation of a novel. Yes. Um. So it, even though it is not like pure Charlie Kaufman, it you're right. It does. It does seem to have more of a more of a um, fidelity to his vision as an artist and what he's interested in than um, his earlier works. And I, so there is to me in the self-loathing, which this movie is just so much about self-loathing. Yeah. Like he, there's constantly either him and his voiceover or other characters are referring to him as fat and balding in a yeah. way that's so funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like I do think that he is recognizing these instincts and himself. And I think when you look at his life um, before, like in, in my mind, it was always like the third act break of where um, it separates from reality and there's the there's there's the wild subplot where like the orchids are actually like used for hallucinogens and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Like to me, it was two thirds a Charlie Kaufman movie and then one third a Donald Kaufman movie. Mm-hmm. It is a much slower fade up of Donald Kaufman throughout. It's there's the Donald Kaufman is sort of layered in uh, as the movie goes on. Yeah. But when you look at Charlie Kaufman at the beginning of the movie, um, you look at the scene where he's sitting at the party with his friend who he wants to make mm-hmm. as more than platonic but yeah. he is too nervous to make mm-hmm. a move mm-hmm. um and then you look at the two of them at the end of the movie that in itself is like here is why people make movies where people learn something and grow and fall in love 
because real life is often dissatisfying and depressing and disappointing. And so like built into the sort of refutation of the Lucky McKee thing, not Lucky McKee, Robert McKee, Lucky the Lucky McKee, the refutation of the Lucky McKee thing is the uh, subplot with the serial killer with the body parts because that's sort of similar to May. Um, <laughs> the, in the in the refutation of the Robert McKee thing is in itself an acknowledgement of why people go to art like that yeah. in the first place. Mm-hmm. And something there's some other po- postmodern movies that do this as well that I always find a little disappointing, which is. They are too sarcastic to actually embrace the stupidity of like Hollywood product and therefore they're too afraid to acknowledge why those things are popular and why they can even be good. Mm-hmm. Like there are plenty of movies that fall that hit every note Robert McKee says you should hit that mm-hmm. are fucking masterpieces. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's not a dichotomy of either you're making Umberto D or you're making uh the three and yeah, nothing yeah. in between. And like um, another movie I thought of was something like Cabin in the Woods, which Cabin in the Woods is two screenwriters, uh, Drew Goddard and uh, Joss Whedon, expressing frustration at the formula, like the formulaic nature of horror Mm -hmm. as a genre and and like trying to poke at that and like point out all of the ways it's disappointing that you don't get original horror movies. Mm -hmm. But like when they show the horror movie part, which is like redneck zombies coming to life and killing people... They do a shitty job. They don't offer the opposition the best possible argument, which is what if they did Cabin in the Woods, but also the horror part was scary. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that that is a more interesting movie because you're in the same breath voicing frustration while acknowledging why mm-hmm. things work. The thriller parts of this movie suck. And I don't know if that's like Spike Jones limitations or if they're just too sarcastic to even try to make it work as a thriller. I, I thought the thriller parts were, were just um, underwritten. And and I, I think that uh, I I think that that is supposed to be because those are the parts that Donald is writing where you know he he's a he's a rookie screenwriter um, he's kind of um, you know coloring in the in the numbers that um, this professional has given him in a weekend seminar sure um, and uh, also it, it has to be stuffed into the third act so um, I mean you. I mean, you're right. I did notice this time around that um, there are things uh, earlier in the movie that lay the groundwork for it to go off the rails in the third act. Uh, But when it finally does that, um, you really only have a limited amount of time. Um, So I I think it's really um, just trying to get in. Um, and do what needs to be done before the joke wears too thin and, or before the movie gets too long. Um, I believe in, in the Susan Orlean interview, she also said that the original rough cut that she saw was four hours long. Sure. I, that, um, that, is not, that is not uncommon for something called an assembly she, cut where it's just literally, yeah. they just show everything. Yeah. The other thing that she said when she saw that, when she saw that rough cut was um, that she had the same thought that she had when she was nine months pregnant, which is, well, there's no turning back now. <laughs> Um, I think that's fair that the sloppiness is part of the it's it's like intrinsic to the project yeah. is that this part has to be sloppy. Mm-hmm. Um, another angle on this movie and at a certain point we are going to talk about Judy Greer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> another angle of this movie um, that I wanted you to elaborate a little more on was uh, Nicolas Cage. Uh, as an actor yes. and his performance in this, because you're someone who has been diving into the phenomenon of Nicolas Cage uh, recently. But I wanted to, as part of that, 
you recently saw for the first time Face Off. Yes. So, um, so you're, you're right. I have been diving into Nicolas Cage lately. Um, this podcast uh, is not only well-timed because, yes, I said we're recording during Gemini season, but I did receive a late Christmas present a few months ago, a book by Chicago film critic Keith Phipps, a former editor of the AV Club and the late Great Dissolve called The Age of Cage. And uh, in this book, um, Keith Phipps traces through Nicolas Cage's film career, um, both as um, a, a singular artist, but also within the context of how Hollywood has changed in the last 40 years, the trends that have come and gone, um, and how, how the context of those larger forces of the industry have impacted Cage's career. Knowing that this uh, that this episode was coming up, I read the book. Um, it's an easy read, real fun. The, the way that Phipps introduces adaptation in this book and in the context of Cage's career and with a little direct quote from the man himself, I just thought was so... Um, so juicy and so fascinating that I just need to share this. So this, I'm going to read to you now from the age from Age of Cage, four decades of Hollywood through one singular career by Mr. Keith Phipps. Cage had become unusually adept at playing men with divided identities and characters torn between different ways of life. The roles an actor takes on are rarely purely a matter of choice, and it's a mistake to confuse a filmography with an autobiography, but that doesn't make recurring patterns easy to ignore. He'd played a man divided in two in Face Off, and he would have played another split personality in Superman Lives. He'd even considered splitting himself at two, at least in name. In 2000, Cage told the Los Angeles Times' Amy Kaufman he wanted to adopt the name Miles Lovecraft, inspired by jazz trumpeter Miles Davis and horror writer H.P. Lovecraft for edgier projects. Whenever you saw Miles Lovecraft in a movie, he said, you'd know it was going to be dark subject matter, an independent film. It would be my own little internal protection device so people aren't going to 8mm expecting to see the rock. Miles would work for scale. He'd have to build his way up the ladder. Nick Cage has been doing it for 20 years. Miles Lovecraft hasn't done anything. You've got to put in your dues. Ultimately, Cage's representatives talked him out of the idea. Mostly talked about him ever working for scale. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Cage gets paid. <laughs> yes. Yes, he does. <laughs> Even having famously gone through a financial uh, collapse in the late aughts, he is doing just fine for himself these days. Um, you know, having those uh, those films in his very recent background, um, you, you know, kind, kind of lays the context for, for adaptation. And Nicolas Cage uh, also having a career somewhat parallel to Charlie Kaufman's where he is, he's someone who, uh, you know, is, he's a leading man, uh, but he's a bit hard to, to categorize. You know, he, he does his own singular thing. He brings, uh, his own approach to acting. He brings his own energy. I mean, and it's become, you know, an, an internet meme as, as we all know. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, just so much of his 
early career was, was him wanting wanting to do art and he he keeps using the word punk like he wants to make the movies that are that are punk and he wants to stay independent and he wants to stay on the cutting edge but then just like you know him trying to to find his place in in Hollywood and, and find the projects that are going to work for him and work for his career and, and finding that balance it seems like it's been a um like a 40-year struggle for him so much like it's it's been for for Charlie Kaufman yeah um but uh after reading this book uh and in preparation for this podcast I did sit down and watched two other movies where Cage plays two different characters I watched John Woo's Face Off and I watched the uh, 2020 film The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent uh, written by Tom Gormican and Kevin Etten. And it was interesting to see all three of these films so close together um, that all feature a similar device of Cage playing two different characters uh, and how they all kind of... uh, end up being very different movies from from each other um how that device ends up being used in very different ways um i, I mean face off is i think the, uh, the the genesis of this idea um of nicolas cage playing caster troy caster troy <laughs> i'm sorry pa- patrick patrick yeah i'm i'm going to whisper and if we if we whisper they can't hear us. Okay. I have an idea. Yeah. Let's say that we have a DVD of Face Off and there is a deleted scene where Judy Greer's in it so that we can devote a whole episode to Face Off and how fucking ridiculous and wonderful of a movie it is. That sounds great. No one will ever know. They don't have to know. No, they don't. And they can't. IMDb gets it wrong all the time. Exactly. And who and who else but you owns DVDs these days? That's true. They can't go back and verify. It's not on Netflix. It's the perfect crime. <laughs> and break. Okay. <laughs> That's where the edit goes in, Reg, and go. Yes, I will definitely edit that. Um, so Face Off, I think, is um, the height of Cage at his celebrity, Cage, the blockbuster action star, um, working with, with John Woo, who had recently come from Hong Kong to America to also make these big blockbuster action films that were just the, the, the peak of the theater-going experience in the late 90s. That movie's so bananas. And just because I did bring it up earlier, just to just to tie the bow on the thing I left dangling uh, 20 minutes ago, um, Face Off to me is like the perfect example of the kind of thing that Charlie Kaufman in the movie adaptation would hate and despise, but is actually just pure ecstatic joy and cinema. <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. I, I think if I had seen Face Off when I first saw adaptation i would absolutely hate it i i think if someone had asked me do you want to see face off i would i would be disgusted and say no and be offended watching it this weekend i mean it's it's so ridiculous but i thought it was great it's it it is a donald kaufman movie where it's a bananas premise john travolta plays sean archer a cia counterterrorism expert nicholas cage is caster troy high-tech science lab and remove caster's face and put his face on your face and take off your face and put it in a jar (laughs) 
and Sean says, I've been tracking Castor for so long. to be Sean Archer. Movies are good. It's the tightest shit. <laughs> <laughs> this movie's so good. Oh, man. Oh, man. A million stars. I love this movie. I'm going to be a little vulnerable. I hadn't really seen John Woo movies before, and I watched Face Off, and a few weeks ago, we watched... Uh, Hard Target. We watched Hard Target, and... Guys, I think this John Woo's on to something. <laughs> watch more john woo movies don't don't say anything that you can't take back wretch <laughs> okay. stop coming out with these hot takes like john woo good <laughs> i'll have to find more excuses to watch more john woo movies because they're a lot of fun although you were like you know he, he and nick cage made wind talkers and i was like no <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean i mean th- this is uh very much in in john woo's interest in these like binaries of like the good good guy and the evil evil guy and and uh but they also kind of mirror each other and you have a lot of this like this like symmetry and this binary imagery where they're they're like on on either side of like a mirror and they like shoot at each other through the mirror and you've got like caster has these like twin gold guns and it's like they're the twin gold guns because they look like each other and there's doves flying in slow motion and and bouquets of flowers get shot up and petals go everywhere and there's sparks fucking everywhere Oh man, you have Face Off, which is this uh, over the top, just the the spectacle of, of the set pieces of this overblown concept, and then of these two action stars who are really at the height of their like A list status, um, doing this like stunt acting basically, uh, where you have uh, Travolta. You know, who once he is playing Caster, he is doing like his Nick Cage impression. And then you have Nick Cage, who once he is Sean, is still Nick Cage. (laughs) (laughs) Cage takes a lot of his inspiration from German expressionism. Um, He said this in in Phipps's book. He said this in a lot of interviews that I've watched where he, uh, you know, that's where he gets like big expressions from like 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 these big uh silent moments where there's the the close-ups and like his eyes go wide and his head tilts back and and so that is that comes from his love of movies like like Nosferatu and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari um it totally pays off in this big overblown operatic movie where uh it, it's almost like like metropolis where the woman who's the union organizer and she's a paragon of good but then there's her robot doppelganger who is like sneaking around and rubbing her hands together evilly it's, it's that kind of thing you know and then you have adaptation which uh cage said in an interview was the most demanding role that he's ever done kate nicholas cage is nicholas cage he he does say uh some very big things uh when he's when he's in an interview uh and what he said was uh that he's always a bit mystified when people congratulate him on adaptation and tell him how much they loved his performance as donald kaufman because he claims he does not remember playing donald (laughs) he prepared to he prepared to be charlie by interviewing him for hours talking to him for hours taping it studying the tapes he says he does not remember playing donald um, but I, I think his performance in adaptation is delightful. It's very much like, like a low key kind of cage, um, for cage, for cage. but, it, but it is, it is still, it does have those broad expressionist kind of touches where like he is, 
when you, when you talk about the, the acting in expressionist films, what you're talking about is people reaching beyond realism to yeah. reach like the ecstatic inner truths yeah. and to like make those external. Yeah. And like when you see Charlie Kaufman in adaptation, the character Charlie Kaufman in adaptation, you see like the elemental embodiment of sad sack. He yeah. is the most sad sack who has ever said yeah. he is the most flop sweat, twitchy, yeah. nervous, itchy arm guy who has ever. For, for, yeah. For, for someone who, who struggles with, with expressing his feelings and someone who struggles with connecting with other people, he does really wear his heart on his sleeve in, in this movie as this character. And, and I, and I do want to say like, part of the reason I was a little bit nervous to go back to this movie is because I have had this arc already in my life multiple times before where a really fascinating, exciting, um, idiosyncratic character actor mm -hmm. gets codified as that and then becomes a meme and then sort of becomes a parody of that in culture. Mm -hmm. um, by the time I started paying attention to movies, I had like a nine-month arc where I got really excited about Christopher Walken. But like by the time you get to like this, the time that I am like taking movies as an art form seriously is like 2005 or whatever. Mm -hmm. By the time you get to 2005, 2006, Christopher Walken is the impression of Christopher Walken. Mm -hmm. And he just appears in movies doing the Christopher Walken thing. And in fact, it might even be like the last the last moment Christopher Walken, like the Rubicon that he crossed was the Spike Jones music video for Weapon of Choice, where it's oh. like, that is the music video that identifies, that is meme Christopher Walken. It is the fact mm -hmm. that Christopher Walken is in this video that makes it the thing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. he, he is like just the embodiment of himself in that. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Goldblum was one of my favorite actors of all time. I think Jeff Goldblum's corny as shit now. And I like, <laughs> every time I see him in one of those stupid apartment ads where he, he, he's doing his little Jeff Goldblum yeah. Switches and mannerisms, I, I get so disappointed. And it's like mm -hmm. there was a point in time where I could point to stuff like The Fly or Mr. Frost or other Jeff Goldblum stuff and mm -hmm. go, that is a like, fascinating character actor who yeah. sort of backwards stumbled into leading man status. Yeah. And then eventually it was just like, nah, I'm not into it anymore. It just it got it got too self-aware and the the excitement and the energy is mm -hmm. gone. Mm -hmm. To tell the truth. Nicolas Cage is better at acting than either of them. <laughs> and like, that's just like not the case with him. I mean, there's certainly Nicolas Cage movies I've seen that are like, this is the super mega cage where he's going real big. And then mm -hmm. I'm just sort of rolling my eyes, but it's because the movies fail him. There's a movie mom and dad. It's just the way it's shot and edited. Like the performance just is boring and it's just, it's just too thin of a movie. Yeah. It's just, it's concept. Um, there's not a lot of fat, but yeah, it doesn't really give him enough room to really get there right um so and, and it's like Nicolas Cage not a stranger to being in bad movies and I just think that happens to be one of them yeah. but I think he as an actor like I just think about like Nicolas Cage and Birdie Nicolas Cage and mm -hmm. Vampire's Kiss mm -hmm. Nicolas Cage and Moonstruck Nicolas mm -hmm. Cage and Face Off Nicolas Cage and Adaptation there's so many layers and angles and there's there's so many tenors that he can perform in mm -hmm. and when I was going into adaptation I was uh conflating him a little bit with a movie he did shortly after this uh called Matchstick Men mm -hmm. which is also where he plays an extremely neurotic character mm -hmm. who uh sort of you know he has OCD in that um but uh that is a much bigger and less modulated performance. Him mm -hmm. in this movie, he hits it just like perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's not really any telltale like, well, when you're looking at Charlie Kaufman, the hair is like this and the, and he dresses like this. And when you're looking at Donald, like they are twin brothers and yeah. they look like twins. 
and but it, and they they talk the same, but mm-hmm. like it is, you instantly know who is who in any given moment because he just so perfectly captures their essence. For his performance in adaptation, you have not only the challenge of portraying a real person. Uh, much like the challenge that Charlie Kaufman had writing the movie, you also have that challenge of portraying a, a, a fictional character who's kind of from this real person, more, more, maybe more closely related than uh, than you usually uh, would have for a fictional character in in a screenplay. But having to just like build that character out of nothing and seeing like what that character symbolizes and having to thread that delicate needle between saying things that your target audience is going to find loathsome but creating a character who's just so delightful and so like instantly lovable even though there's there's so much about Donald where he that just hits these points of oh you're not supposed to like this character he's he's mooching off his brother he he's involved in get rich quick schemes he buys into Robert McKee's um, rules of, of screenwriting, lock, stock, and barrel. He represents like everything bad, but he's still just like like a ray of sunshine in this like neurotic, cynical world. And it's balanced so well. And you don't think of Cage as someone who brings balance to a role. Right. Right. You you think about Cage who someone stands outside of a movie. Yeah. And it's and it's like no matter what kind of movie, it's going to be Nicolas Cage. Yeah. And like some movies are better equipped to handle that and some are not, but he's but he's always going to push it so hard that if you don't have control over the movie that surrounds that performance, then it's just going to seem weird and out of place. But it is, it is so perfectly in place. And I think part of that is, honestly, this is still 2001 that this is made. Uh-huh. Uh, it was supposed to come out December 2001, and it got delayed to December 2002. Uh-huh. Um, but So, like, this is still Nicolas Cage in, like, the height of his career. Yeah. And I have to imagine that there is still something in his instincts as an actor that is, like... Uh, I'm a movie star now, and I like I, I think that the philosophy, despite the sort of consistent uh, intensity um, throughout his entire career from the 80s to now, like I have to imagine that you don't get to have Nicolas Cage giving this kind of performance in 2023 because Nicolas Cage now is not someone who can like meet a meet material halfway <laughs> anymore. I don't know, because we just watched um, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, mm-hmm. is the name of the film. Right. That movie has a lot of references to the career of Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Um, the movie that is, the title that is not spoken, but it is maybe most indebted to, is Adaptation. Yeah. yeah. It is a movie about two characters who are trying to work a screenplay, and those two characters sort of represent different uh, artistic instincts uh, in that collaboration. Mm-hmm. And it is a movie that calls its shots as far as like a, a hackneyed screenplay would do this. Right. And that we, you know. But we're uh, not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to have dopey CGI. We're not going to have big set pieces. We're not going to have people randomly kidnap your daughter. So yeah. you have to save her. Even though in the reality of the movie, um, th- there is a, a young woman who's being kidnapped. But in the reality of the film being written within the film, we wouldn't think of something like that. That is just not, that doesn't happen. That's not real. That's not art. And this, it's a very, it's despite the, despite having so many similarities, it is very different in many ways from adaptation. Yeah, yeah but, um, but you're right. It, it does owe a lot to adaptation, even though, um, and it is a meta film because it is a film about Nicolas Cage, the, the celebrity. It mm-hmm. is a film about Nicolas Cage.
age the the oeuvre. Uh, it is a film about teasing the audience with nonfiction and fiction and the yeah. blurred lines between the yeah, yeah, between the two. I, I mean, his uh, so it, they're different films. It's it's a silly to compare, but like his performance in that movie is not nearly as good as his performance in adaptation. I don't oh, think. Oh no, no. I mean, it's good. It's good. It's it's. it's I yeah, grounded. I enjoyed it. Um and. And I, I have to push back at, at what you said, where um, because he has, uh, I, I mean, I mean, within the last twenty years, uh, Cage has done movies uh, where he is more fitting within the world of the film. I mean, I think Pig is a, a recent example. That's a good point. Um, where it's not, it's not just about him. There's, there's, uh, there's real deep emotion, but there's no histrionics. Right. Pig is a movie that specifically plays with uh, the sort of, I don't know if you would call it dramatic irony. But there, it is playing with the fact that the audience knows that it's Nicolas Cage. Yeah. And the movie is uh, structurally set up like a John Wick kind of revenge film. Yeah. And it is specifically about thwarting expectations of violence at yeah. every turn. And yeah. like what what this kind of movie and what this mm-hmm. kind of narrative has to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that is the potential explosive violence that is contained in Nicolas mm-hmm. Cage. Um, never comes out, right. and I and that is in fact Nicolas Cage, n- not necessarily surrendering to material, but meeting material, mm-hmm. and what he doesn't do is more important than what he does do in that movie. I, yeah, yeah. So, so that is a good example. Yeah, um, but yeah, but but he is willing to go there. Yes, um, and it is a very sensitive portrayal. I think David Gordon Green's Joe is also very a similar movie where his his. He, I mean, that's like that's 2013. Thank you. Where it, it, it is a more like restrained performance, but I, I think I think by 2013 you, you did kind of have that expectation of, of like wild man Nicolas Cage and and um, you know him sort of playing opposite expectations um, is why people were talking about that movie as much as they were. It's fine. Joe is fine. <laughs> it's, there's, there's flaws. The meta aspects of Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent call back in adaptation not only um, the sort of plot element of like, we are two people who live very different lives, but we care about each other and we're going to write a movie together. Um, but also in adaptation, um, they kind of uh, they kind of bring up the, the, uh, the Ouroboros and that idea of like, um, the, the image of, of the snake consuming its tail or as it ends up in Donald's script, the, the serial killer who cuts off pieces of his victim and feeds them to the victim but has multiple personality disorders so the victim is himself. <laughs> That's kind of an Ouroboros too, I guess. Um, but Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent really leans into that where the, the bulk of the subject matter is... Nicolas Cage and his career and his persona and it is somewhat a a fiction where you know he doesn't have a wife who's as old as the actress playing his wife in the movie he doesn't have a teenage daughter but so much of who he is in that movie is Nicolas Cage even though it sounds ridiculous like uh he, he refers to his his acting as nouveau shamanism, which is something that he was absolutely saying in the 90s. <laughs> um, he, he greets people with this little martial arts bow. And then I, I was like, oh, that's a funny little um, detail that they threw in. And then I watched a 60 Minutes interview with Cage. And when he's welcoming the interviewer into his home, he does that little martial arts bow to greet her. <laughs> so it, a lot of it was like very true to who he is as a person in his life and in interviews. Um, the the dual role aspect comes up where, again, kind of like how Donald is Charlie's id, you have Nikki, who is 
a younger version of Cage that he kind of talks to in his mind, uh, who is also a, a version of his id. Um, the the hair and the costume that they do for the younger Nicolas Cage is actually um, completely lifted from an interview that he did on a British talk show in 1994, Wild at Heart, <laughs> where he just went completely bananas. Like he did a handspring onto the set when he when he was introduced. He threw money into the crowd. He did karate kicks. He sat down and then he and then like halfway through the interview, because he's wearing this leather jacket and he's under hot lights and he just did all these karate kicks. He just says that he's hot, so he takes off his Wild at Heart T-shirt and gives it to the interviewer and says like, here, have this as a souvenir and the interviewer who is this like middle-aged British man in a suit is just like oh yeah it's very good oh, well how, how was working with David Lynch and it's just it's just like the most bizarre six minutes not the most bizarre six minutes you can find on YouTube but maybe the most bizarre thing you've seen on YouTube all day so we've talked a lot about Nicolas Cage mm -hmm. and obviously he's like an essential part of adaptation yeah. in his two roles that it, he, if, if this movie, if Charlie Kaufman's true uh, burning passion is Charlie Kaufman, then the person who plays Charlie Kaufman and Charlie Kaufman's sort of Hollywood minded id mm -hmm. uh, is a central part of it. Mm -hmm. We talked about Meryl Streep also playing on her movie star status in a different way, which is because this is a movie purely from Charlie Kaufman's point of view, um, Susan Orlean is this idealized, just like uh, sort of angelic uh, yes. figure. Yes. And the fact that it is Meryl Streep playing that gets like, it's one of those things that Susan Orlean in the film adaptation is not a three-dimensional character. She's not a real person. She's not someone who benefits from like having one of the most accomplished lesbians in Hollywood history right, playing right. her. But she is someone who has, like, who natural beauty and grace and intelligence embodied yeah. is yeah. Meryl Streep. And the second you see her as Susan Orlean, you not only uh, get an idea of who Susan Orlean is, you specifically get an idea of how Charlie Kaufman views Susan Orlean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so there are two other performances that we need to absolutely talk about. One of which is Chris Cooper, who in 2002, uh -huh. he was sort of on the rise. He uh, made a big splash in American Pie. Not American, American Pie, American Beauty. Yeah. That very different movie. <laughs> uh, well, somewhat different movie. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Chris Cooper is so charming in this. I think, again, with just talking about walking a very uh, narrow path, um, I I could see LaRoche as being uh, j just a character who um, is also just kind of given over to the audience's contempt. Uh, a lot of what he says is lifted from the book. I mean, there wasn't really a change to his personality, um, especially with uh, Susan Orlean presenting John LaRoche to an audience in The New Yorker, I could see there being a lot of contempt uh, based on class, based on region. Um, and this is someone who is, uh, I guess, completely himself. Uh, he does not seem like, like someone who tries to be anything that he's not. Uh, but he's also he's also very prickly. He's very eccentric. He doesn't try to get along with people. Um, he's obsessive. But the way that Cooper brings that to life is just so human. And um, you you just have these these few scenes where he does allow himself some vulnerability uh, that are just so affecting. He he does have this this sort of 
inherent machismo just because he is this sort of like rough and tumble adventuresome kind of guy out out in the swamps where there's you know all this danger afoot and he just kind of goes in in like a, a an old pair of sneakers and smoking a cigarette um but there's no posturing it's just it's just this real uh grounded honest impulse that he's following big um makeup changes can often upstage a character yeah and i think uh chris cooper's performance like a testament to chris cooper's performance is so much of laroche comes from the fact that he has no front teeth yeah um so much of that machismo is a uh, cut through with a sort of boyish enthusiasm and that mm-hmm. and that like that idea of like no front teeth is like is part of that uh image that like yeah. the second he smiles and he has no front teeth he looks like a five-year-old yeah um but he is never upstaged by it it's right. n- it never it's never distracting it just feels totally natural yeah, yeah. it's it's an absolutely incredible performance mm-hmm. um for sure also i think the fact that they choose to uh to retain in the film that he's missing his teeth because of a a car accident in which his mother died um does give that detail like a real um human weight that a lot of times i think i think a character like that in a movie it would just sort of be like oh he's a hayseed he doesn't have his teeth um, yeah. but but this is like like no there was this like deep tragedy and like there's probably a, like like a reason he doesn't get you know dentures or, or something like like I, th- I think even we see like susan back in new york and she's at like a dinner party with her fancy new yorker friends and they're making fun of his teeth that, that is such a beautiful moment about yeah. you want you want to talk about like the act of adaptation the act of like have feeling your work taken away from you yeah there is an adaptation going on at that dinner party where susan orlean has shared some of her if not early like draft then at least her notes Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. her a husband i think it is Uh who is there at the dinner party with her yeah um and she has to go to the bathroom so she goes oh don't tell the story i'll be right back yeah he starts telling the story anyway and she's like she's a little drunk and she's having a good time with all of her friends they're all you know they're all having an urbane new york kind of a time yeah and when she goes to the bathroom and they and she hears the sort of three-dimensional uh sort of awe that she has for LaRoche cut down into this two-dimensional hayseed. Yeah. Like, just that good time vanishes from yeah. her and she feels so guilty and, yeah. she, and like, that act of, like, once you release a work and it goes into other people's hands, like, you can't control uh, what they do with that anymore. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, it's this, like, it's this, like, beautiful moment of the movie in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and it does kind of, kind of um, speak to this paradox of, like, if you're writing about something that like you care about and it's important to you and kind of knowing that like once you're done writing and you put it out into the world that like other people will take it and kind of put it through their own lens and, and interpret it and experience it, how they're going to experience it. It's, it's hard to do. And I, I think, I think you see that with, with her in that moment. And then you also see it with Kaufman where he wants to do right by her but he's also putting her on this pedestal where it's like he's refusing to meet her but he he's constantly saying like you know this is a beautiful book and i just want i just want to do the right thing um but it's it's hard it's it's hard knowing um that that when that when you make something when and when you put it out there especially when it's something so personal especially when it's like you yourself you you who you are 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 part of it and you're trying to portray yourself taking that final plunge of like hey look at what i did is it's why i don't finish any of my projects <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is it is a risk 
There's another performance that we need to talk about now oh, that we're there? about 90 minutes into this podcast. Oh. Uh, Judy Greer is in this film. Judy Greer's <laughs> right. film. To be fair, this is a typically small but uh like key performance from Judy Greer yes. playing Alice the waitress uh as Charlie Kaufman is sort of just lounging about LA desperately trying to figure out how the hell he's going to write this screenplay. He does what so many screenwriters do. He rewards himself with lunch for writing two sentences. <laughs> he goes to a diner. There's a very pretty waitress named Alice played by Judy Greer who sees the orchid thief on the table and says, oh, I love orchids. And he goes, cool. And she goes, hey, he orders a slice of key lime pie. And she goes, all right, I'll go get that for you. And classic sad sack, like the slightest bit of attention and not even affection, but like the slightest bit of like human acknowledgement yeah. he gets from someone of the opposite sex instantly becomes like, all-encompassing infatuation, romantic and sexual fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like, what would our what will our life be together? Yeah. <laughs> um, and he has a fantasy about taking her to an orchid show, right. and she very er- uh, erotically says, "Why don't we see what's around back?" And they go to the woods behind the expo, and she disrobes for him. And he, this is a masturbatory fantasy that gets interrupted by Donald being a goober. <laughs> um, and then there's one more scene where he goes back to that restaurant. Uh, she remembers him. Uh, she does what I think is a very accurate and well-observed amount of waitress flirting. Yes. Which is not real flirting and which, you know, it's it is you someone who works for tips uh, um, who is being maybe extra kind and maybe like paying extra attention to someone yeah. because it is fine, is beneficial to them. Yeah, she calls him a preferred customer yeah. and she calls him the orchid expert. Right, and she flatters him and uh, he misreads this or... Maybe he just desperately wants to be like, you know, in a previous scene, he totally failed to make the moves on uh, his lady friend after a night together yeah. at the he, symphony. He invites her to the orchid show and she's and because he hasn't made any romantic moves, she's just sort of like, no, I, I'm busy from the subtext is just sort of like, well, if you're not going to try and kiss me, why do we keep going on these fake dates? Kinda, right. Right. Kind of vibe. Um, um, she draws a line um, there. It's there is just a totally immaculate edit in this movie where they are having their little uh, chit-chat about orchids, their little banter. She talks about a friend's orchid, and he knows the uh, species of it, and she gets suitably impressed and flatters him over it. And then there's just this brief pause, and then he's sort of stumbling over his words, says, there's over 30,000 kinds of orchids. Yeah. Uh, like, like a six-year-old. Like a six-year-old. Yes, he, he is Jonathan Lipnicki in Jerry Maguire. Um, and it... You don't see her make a reaction. It just, Spike Jones just cuts back to her face and her eyes are already wide. And instantly it registers as just like, oops, thought this was a normal person that I could waitress flirt with. This yeah. guy's kind of a weirdo. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's slowly back, let's slowly pump the brakes on my, my approach that I was going with at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately he does not read that, uh, that uh, facial expression correctly. And as she starts to walk away to get him a slice of key lime pie, he stops her to, br- to bring her back to ask her to an orchid show. And instantly her face drops and she's like sort of like horrified by the social awkwardness yeah. of the situation. He instantly recognizes now what's going on and he starts to profusely apologize. She starts to, to stutter and say, I- I'm going to get your pie. We see her in the distance sort of very pointedly not looking at him, but like, 
having a sort of grave expression as she talks to her coworker, mm-hmm. and they kind of gesture at him like, oh, they're going over there. I, I'm a little, just keep an eye on him because I don't want anything bad to happen. And mm-hmm. I don't know if this is like weirdo, weirdo or dangerous weirdo or yeah. what. Yeah. And it is just like this great, like projected fan- sexual, erotic, romantic fantasy, like, and then instantly like sad, sad, like just sort of reaffirming what a sad piece of shit he is. Yeah. Um. Again, like she's in three scenes very brief maybe two minutes of screen time yeah she is such a fully fleshed human being and like mm-hmm. she she is so just like in that job and she is so like that's that's yeah. a waitress uh, like that's that's what uh, being a server is like judy greer mentions in her memoir that um when she was in acting school in chicago uh she worked at uh, a very popular nightclub. Um, she started in the coat room and, and kind of worked her way up to being a bartender. Uh, so I imagine that she probably had that kind of experience doing that job mm-hmm. quite a bit. But yeah, I, I think I think anyone who's worked a service job has had that kind of experience where um, you're you're trying to you're either you're working for tips or you're trying to to put someone at ease or you, you know just just whatever it is where you're just trying to form a professional relationship and sometimes people don't necessarily know where the boundaries are and uh then it just sort of turns into like oh and i'm gonna be on the phone for the next 30 minutes okay Uh, (laughs) that's my job (laughs) not a server job but yeah same same yeah yeah. um if they wanted this if they wanted alice the waitress to be like she's a babe in la who's waiting tables and she's like a model and she's just like a sexy erotic fantasy like they would not have cast judy greer the the very Mm -hmm. specific thing they achieve by casting judy greer is like there is a certain mundanity to the to his sexual fantasy when Mm -hmm. he like in his masturbatory fantasy where he takes her out to the orchid show and she goes into the the woods and takes off her shirt it is the same blouse that she's wearing as a way yeah yeah exactly um There is a recurring theme. Um, Charlie Kaufman masturbates a lot in this movie. Um, um, Susan Orlean, who was initially um, very hesitant, even though the book was already optioned, but very hesitant at how she is portrayed um, as very much going against the ethics of her profession. And at first um, she's saying, well, don't use my real name. I don't want my real name used. She was convinced by the producers two ways. One, they said, do you really want us to show the orchid thief in the film and not have your name on it? And she said, no. And the other thing was they said to her well look at charlie he wrote the screenplay and he's constantly masturbating throughout the movie um but every time you you kind of go into his fantasy world it is always a woman that he knows um and it is always a woman who he knows who's like stroking his ego yes it is, um, it is he has sexual fantasies about the hollywood executive played by tilda swinton yeah. that he is sort of his contact who he got the screenwriting job from yeah and during their sexual fantasy she's talking about what a genius Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah, and and like and like uh, and Susan Orlean, where um, he's sort of having this imagined conversation with her, and he's saying I'm fat and ugly, and she's saying No, you're not. I like looking at you. And then he imagines having sex with her, um, and it's kind of the same thing here, where it's like he struck out with Amelia, asking her if she wanted to go to the orchid show, but just imagining like, oh, pretty redheaded wait- waitress, she would just find it so fascinating. She even says, I've always wanted to go to an orchid show. So here's Charlie Kaufman just swooping in, sensitive artistic guy. <laughs> Fulfilling her orchid fantasies. She probably meets so many jerks in LA. Thank God she met someone like me, Charlie Kaufman, fat, bald, fat. (laughs) 
uh, Greer career wise, um, this is around the same time that uh, that she did What Planet Are You From within a couple years of each other. So she is in that in that point in her career um, where she is sort of like the pretty girl who's being hit on. Um, but she does bring more of a quirkiness to it. I mean, in, in this, I feel like in this film, the women characters who are seen as like as like beautiful and desirable are they are beautiful and desirable, um, but do have sort of the most beautiful girl in the room to to quote uh flight of the concords where you you have judy greer you have maggie gyllenhaal um i would say meryl streep even um and tilda swinton where it's it's like they're all beautiful women but in in sort of uh more grounded ways than Mm -hmm. um than like if you brought in you know someone with like elfin cheekbones and whatever you know and 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 you're right it does kind of ground it in this like day-to-day attainable kind of fantasy where it's it's like i mean it's kind of what what charlie wants where it's like it's not a big hollywood thing he doesn't he doesn't have you know like uh, it it seems like for him to masturbate emotionally he needs to know that maybe because he's a screenwriter and he's always thinking about narrative he needs to know how they got to the sex he needs to somehow justify it to himself (laughs) it needs to be realistic in that way he can't just like picture I was about to say Sophia Loren because I'm a grandpa. He can't just picture like the most beautiful woman in the world. And he, also he's there having sex with her. I, he ha- I like how we're both like struggling to think of like of like who are the mainstream beautiful women? You know, you know, you know, the real problem is um, uh, we're we're fucking queer. Yeah, I know. I know. So like so like when I think about like babes, I'm like Melanie Linsky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Same here. I'm also like Melanie Linsky. We we share a thought bubble. There actually. you go. Yeah, we're we're fucking goobers who have lived together too long, and it turns out we only have one thought, and it's Melanie Linsky. Yeah. Hmm. Um, at also, any rate. this is going to be a podcast about Yellow Jackets moving forward, so have fun with that. Awesome. <laughs> um, but uh, I I love Judy Greer in this movie. I love that in this like you know there's so much voiceover so much of the movie is about this like morose neurotic self-obsession and negativity and this feeling of inadequacy like the sort of contrast that she plays just being her bubbly self Mm -hmm. and just being the judy greer character who Mm -hmm. in 2002 you know people didn't know but like we look back and we go that's a that's a judy greer performance yeah yeah um it's just it's just great casting and but it's it is also just a testament to what she can do mm-hmm. with so little. Yeah, just like Lolly Love, just like a fair amount of the movies that we've talked about, she's in it for she has just a few lines, but she really she fleshes out her her timing, her expressions um so funny. Even in her fakeness in in yes. this case. Yes, yeah, it that, is it is like specifically it is just the layers. fake enough. Yes. where it's like it's like she's not condescending, she's just putting on her work face yes. and it's, it's something that's like so relatable. I think that's the thing that really struck me this time around um where even though adaptation is so so cerebral and so out there just in terms of like scope and structure and just like the struggle of like trying to adapt this book like no one can relate to that but the the emotions that like all the characters have are so relatable like like you can relate to Charlie feeling like oh this person's my friend no they're not I'm paying them to be my friend and also you can relate to her where it's just sort of like I am friendly work person and oh no now I've I friendly work person myself into a really uncomfortable situation yeah even in in those like little moments those little moments of defeat are just so real yes Um, yeah it's a great movie adaptation is really fucking good guys (laughs) uh if you take take away two things from this episode 
John Woo is a good director and yes. Adaptation is a good movie. Aren't, and that's why you tune in. Aren't you glad you listen to film podcasts? <laughs> oh, we ended up as two fucking dorks with a film podcast talking about how much we like Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. Oh no! <laughs> Struggle as we might, you know we, have, we are here again. It's it's episode ten, and we're just getting it out of our system. We're just we're just shaking it out. It's ninety six Greers, and we there's only so many adaptations in in the clip. That's true. And we are sort of just reveling in the fact that we have a movie like uh, like a full feast, like adaptation. Future is an unknown. We should just be in the present moment. That's right. Adaptation is an excellent, excellent movie. That's right. That's um, very nouveau shamanistic of you. Uh, approach to podcasting. Thank you. thank you. I you know what I approach podcasting like it's jazz mm-hmm. or punk mm-hmm. or jazz punk mm-hmm. we have another segment the second phase of a, of, a, of a three phase podcast that is the other segment the other segment now we have both come up with uh some other segments uh involving judy greer that are tangentially related to adaptation as a film who should go first? I could go first. All right, let's go with your with your uh, other segment first. Okay, so we we've talked about Nicolas Cage playing two roles in Face Off, in Adaptation, and in Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. So my question stemming from that is: uh, Can you pitch me a movie where Judy Greer plays two different characters? Now you might be asking yourself: Did I create a title? for this segment i am asking myself this i did can i hear it yes the wrong pod the wrong other segment it's the right film to rolls for judy rolls for judy and i don't think i've heard a segment name that made me oh so mad If we keep making these more elaborate, it will make me sad. (laughs) You know, I... It took me a while to come up with mine, and yours was just bam. It was right there, off the cuff. You didn't know it was coming. You had you had your face just scrunched in your hands because you you are were so mad that that we that we know each other. <laughs> What's a better incubator for creativity than rage? <laughs> You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to go first? I would like to go first. (laughs) I am impressed. Uh, To be be clear, I am impressed with that title. Um, So I think the two roles thing is sort of an inherently bombastic choice by any filmmaker. You can't casually have an actor playing two roles. Like, it has to always exist in this, like, wild, heightened context. You know, it has to be Dead Ringers or it has to be The Black Room, because I'm grandpa, I'll go back to Boris Karloff and that. You know, it has to be something like that. Um, so I was trying to think of, like, what would be, like, a bombastic genre um, that that we could, like, put this do- double role in. Um, and I sort of reached into my inner Donald Kaufman and realized that thriller is my genre. Um, and I was trying to think about, like, I, you know, I was thinking about thrillers with this uh, premise like uh, The Dark Mirror with Olivia de Havilland uh-huh. um, and stuff like that that are about twins. And I was thinking about what are the sides of Judy Greer. And the sides of Judy Greer are like she's like a sweet, 
bubbly, like just burst of energy. And she's very charming, but she's also very acerbic and she can be nasty. Mm -hmm. And there is this sort of sexual edge to so many of her performances. So I was thinking, I want to see an erotic thriller where she plays the good twin and the evil twin. And the good twin is like virginal. Evil twin is like slutty, is the coding. Okay. Okay. and so I'm thinking like, okay, so now we're sort of taking this into a noir thing where she's playing a femme fatale. This is like the Brian De Palma um, arena of thrillers like Dress to Kill or Body Double. And so I'm, I was thinking like the problem with Judy Greer is you can't place her as like film noir femme fatale. She just doesn't have that like arch sensibility. Like she can do anything, but it would just be it would be awkward and miscast to like put her in. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's not sort it's of not, it's not a natural fit for that her sort of energy, icy yeah. thing. So I was trying to think of like, well, what is a context where she is like smoldering erotic, mm-hmm. um, sort of character? And then I was like, all right, well, so now it's small town Wisconsin because I for some reason I always associate Judy Greer with the Midwest. We're talking about a movie that takes place largely around the PTA of small town Wisconsin. Um, There is the one Judy character who is the sort of the head of the PTA and she's very responsible and she's very buttoned up, but she is also very repressed Mm -hmm. and she has a twin that people know exists, but they haven't really seen the twin. One day the twin arrives in town and the twin is just like total smoke show, having sex with everybody, mm-hmm. like agent of chaos, thr- flipping this this small town upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, spoilers, uh, Don- I'm embracing my inner Donald Kaufman. They are in fact the same person. The twin died when they were kids and these are split personalities. Um, because you can't give that game away too quickly, I realize it has to have a protagonist that is sort of the observer. Um, so I was thinking about some other PTA mom who catches Judy Greer, who she thinks is this like wonderful buttoned up conservative mm-hmm. uh, PTA leader, like having sex with her husband. She becomes obsessed with this infidelity and she starts stalking them and realizing there's two Judy Greers. Mm-hmm. She learns more about the twin. Eventually there is a like confrontation on top of the school, uh, like class of 1984 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that she realizes that it's only one person the whole time. She pushes Judy Greer off the roof. She gets impaled on a flagpole and there's like blood smeared on the American flag because I, Whoa. Uh, I forget the, I forget the phrase Donald Kaufman uses an adaptation where he's like building in an image bank or something, <laughs> but like an emotional aesthetic, an emotional aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking about a blood smeared American flag because it's America plus blood. <laughs> Whoa. So, I, I don't. I don't we have, live in a society. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't have a good title or anything for this. But uh, basically, I just want to see like a fevered erotic thriller, mm-hmm. but maybe like with a little bit of Coen Brothers in that it takes place in the mundanity of small midwestern town. Yeah, I was also thinking a bit like Blue Velvet. Um, yes, yeah, that's a yeah, that's another touchstone kinda, for sure. As much as I, I like seeing Judy Greer in in comedies and and sort of campier movies, um, having her in, in like your your meat and potatoes '90s erotic thriller yes. would be really satisfying. Which is going to come back any day now. The erotic I, thriller I, is so overdue. Crossed. Yeah. Oh, that would be great, wouldn't it? To have like neo erotic thrillers. You know the problem. What? The only way you can make a true, proper erotic thriller in 2023 uh-huh. is they got to be so fucking gay. And I just don't <laughs> think the people who hold on to the money mm-hmm. that makes erotic thrillers possible 
are ready to make movies that gay. But you got to get them so gay to have the same sort of dangerous energy that Basic Instinct had yeah. in 1992. Stranger by the Lake. I mean, that was not that long ago. I mean, right. it's, a fr- it's a French movie. It's but, a French, yeah, yeah. It's not mainstream America is ready for Stranger yeah. by the Lake. Knife plus heart, too. I, I guess we just got to move to France and learn how to speak French. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, you know what? I am going to see you. I am, I am flying back from Paris to come and come and see your your movie with, with Judy you. Greer. Thank um, you very much. In in her Judy Greer versus Judy Greer. Yeah. I, I'm into it. My film, I was sort of thinking, you know, along the same lines, like having having one actor in a film play two roles, what sort of situations does that come up in? And what I was thinking was more along the lines of heightened camp, like divine in Hairspray, where, where she plays Ed, um, Edna Turnblad, but then she also plays the the evil, bigoted uh, television producer. Right. I was thinking, well, what kind of movies would kind of call for that? And I was thinking, well, maybe something where the main character is a bit more of a established persona. And I was thinking of the Elvira movie. So I decided to rip off the Elvira movie. Hey. <laughs> so in my film, um, Judy Greer, uh, who in real life does have a uh, a wellness mushroom tincture company. Judy Greer plays a character called Amber, who is a health influencer. Uh, she's in a bit of a financial bind, um, but as luck would have it, she has a, uh, a distant great aunt who passes away, and Judy Greer inherits the great aunt's house. So she moves to a, a, a small town, you know, white picket fence, apple pie, and, and mom kind of pretty similar to your small Wisconsin town. I didn't I didn't think specifically Wisconsin, but that sort of vibe, you know, everyone knows each other kind of town. Um, you know, she moves there. She moves into the house. She thinks, well, you know, I'll save money. I won't have to pay rent. Um, maybe I could fix it up and, and flip it and kind of keep the wellness influencer thing going because that's not really a, I mean, who, who knows how those people make money? I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so she moves into this town. Um, you know, she's out there with like her yoga mat and her selfie stick and, and doing her whole thing. And this is like a very like conservative town, you know, kind of the good old days. Um, and so the townspeople are very suspicious of um, of her as a health influencer. You know, they're looking at, at this like, like, oh, like like meditation and, and acupuncture. That stuff is that's satanic. And and also because they are they are good old fashioned Americans. They, they love their barbecue and they love they love their burgers so when she's out here talking about like probiotic supplements and and veganism they're like oh well you know that's big city stuff we don't we don't like that so um the town elders are are kind of suspicious of her and kind of turning people against her and and we have the town elders who are the uh the principal of the local high school played by anna gastire uh we have the pastor of the the one church in town who's played by keith david and a little bit of stunt casting here because it is that kind of movie the main Mayor of this town is played by none other than Guy Fieri. <laughs> I like how you said stunt casting as if it's like, well, obviously Guy Fieri plays the mayor. That thing he always does. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, because, you know, it's that kind of movie where Guy Fieri plays the mayor. <laughs> Look, this isn't the kind of movie that that's calling for like subtle nuanced performances. So I think it, it, I think if you have someone who's going to be playing a fictional character uh-huh. for the first time, uh-huh. this is this is a, a good 
platform to do that that you don't have to do any any sort of like emotional somersaults and also he's diners drive-ins and dives he he is the champion of the of the cheddar stuffed bacon burger and, sure. and like all this all this good greasy food can so i I'm, ask can i ask uh-huh. you something are you trying to use this podcast to springboard into a, a position at happy madison because that is the most adam sandler ass casting i've ever heard what? where it's like the camera pans over and it's guy fieri and it's like oh whoa it's guy fieri playing a sort of version of himself and saying wacky stuff you know what I'm I'm gonna embrace that. Actually, yes. And and I think because like I said, I was inspired by the Elvira movie. Yeah. Like not the most um subtle and, and nuanced of films. As I as I go along, maybe maybe I will be pitching this to Happy Madison. Maybe, maybe this is my Donald Kaufman moment. Maybe this is my the three. Anyway, can I continue with my story, please and thank you. I'm sorry, go ahead. So Amber uh, moves into this house and she's having this friction with the town and then she starts having these weird dreams and she's in her dreams she's someone else and she's living in this town but it's centuries earlier horse-drawn carriages and she's in like these long skirts and, and she's just um, you know it's still Judy Greer but like like a different person and eventually between Amber doing her own investigating and research and these dreams just kind of building and how vivid they are she discovers that she is descending from a line of witches and she is dreaming that she is her ancestor her great 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 grandmother abigail who was actually a witch and the townspeople burned abigail at the stake but as judy greer discovers not before she curses the families of the town with a soy allergy So Amber gets her revenge on the townsfolk because there's an annual chili cook-off. Amber uses her witch powers to make the most delicious, irresistible batch of chili that she can. And she goes to the chili cook-off and she says, I'm so sorry. Here's my peace offering. It's this beef chili. Please enjoy it. And they try it. And she wins She wins the, the blue ribbon. Everyone loves it. Everyone eats a bowl of her chili. And then um, she goes up to give her acceptance speech and she gets on stage and she says, it's not beef. It's soy crumbles. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone shits their pants. And that's the movie. <laughs> You transitioned into the story with a historian stand by me with Lardass and the vomiting. Yes. <laughs> Lardass's revenge. <laughs> Can Guy Fieri say, this is beyond belief, and she goes, no, this is beyond me? Yes. Okay. Then even, I'm in. Even though I, I think beyond meat is pea protein, but... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, we don't we don't really have to do a lot of a lot of fact checking in this movie. You have me at Judy Greer as Elvira. Yeah, I, I mean, because I was also thinking like, how can we create a, a Judy Greer binary? And what I was thinking was also there is that like that sort of like like sweet bubbliness that would be the the wellness influencer kind of like her character in Good Boy. Um, but then I was thinking on the other hand, you you just have the like the agent of chaos, the loose cannon who we're gonna see in a movie one of these days i just know it um just doing her own thing and and just whirling out and i would just love to hear her version of like your typical witch cackle and i would just love to see her like just like like dressed up like a like like a real over the top hocus pocus kind of costume sure yeah i would i i think she'd be fantastic i love it my other segment i thought because adaptation is uh an adaptation of a non-fiction book yeah 
Um, there is always the question, how do you make a fictional film out of a nonfiction book? So I would take that question and then I would add the qualifier. Uh, how do you make a fictional adaptation of a nonfiction book and find a role for Judy Greer? Because you got so mad at me last episode with my title, I decided to dial it back. I didn't push harder the way you did. Uh, my, my other segment Excuse is just... Excuse me for making a big choice. Reg made a big choice. <laughs> Uh, my other segment is called Now a Major Motion Picture. No pun? No pun this time. Oh. I thought it <laughs> better to have punned and lost than never to have punned at all, I suppose. Uh, how about you start with this one? So this was a bit of a challenge for me to try and think of, uh, of a nonfiction book. I, I feel, I feel like I've been reading more fiction lately, mm-hmm. uh, and, <laughs> and I don't have a great memory. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, so just thinking of, of like of a nonfiction book that really kind of kind of grabbed me was uh, a bit of a challenge, but also trying to think of one that could make a film. I, I really did kind of have to contemplate. Bear with me. The book that I landed on was uh, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by uh, Maria Kondo. Okay, I'm all ears. Maria Kondo, um, she is a like... I don't know what you would even call her, like like a life coach. She's a Japanese woman, and her focus is specifically on keeping an organized living space. The the phrase spark joy. She she kind of came up with the, with that phrase. I actually read this book the last time we we moved. Um, I was preparing to move. I just needed to get rid of some stuff, and um, so I just read this book. Like, okay, what is her system for like organizing stuff? And it was an it's an interesting system for practical reasons for for someone like like me who is trying to be a more organized, tidier person. Um, I found it helpful but also it does just have this idea behind it of how do you let go of the things in your life that don't serve you anymore Mm -hmm. Uh, which is something that I struggle with just in terms of like getting rid of things that I don't use because I think that I'll need them this book it's it's not for everyone like I'll I'll say that right now I'm not going to tell you to go out and like read this book because it'll change your life because like I don't know your life but this book asks the person reading it to have like the faith and the courage that you can let go of things and that things will be okay. There's a part in the in the book that I just found so striking where, you know, she she's encouraging you only hold on to the things that bring you joy. And if it doesn't bring you joy, you should put it back into the world so that it can give someone else joy. Mm. And then uh, she says, well, you know, sometimes people ask me the question, what happens if I go through all my stuff and I and I need to get rid of everything because nothing brings me joy? And she says, well, that means you have to change your life. Like, like that is a sign to you that you have to change your life. So I had the idea for a movie of someone going through this system. Um, I didn't come up with a name for the character, but uh, this is a character played by Amy Ryan. This is someone who is organizing their stuff using this method. And um, something that uh, Kondo asks you to do is hold each individual thing that you're thinking about. Should I keep it? Should I get rid of it? Hold it. If it sparks joy, keep it. You kind of have to figure out like what that feels like for you. This organizing project for Amy Ryan, that is the framing of her story. And as she holds each individual object, we see these vignettes, like what that object means to her. And some of them, she meant to return it to the store and she forgot. And it's just that. But other things, there are specific memories. There are specific connections that come up um, for her as she goes through this stuff. And we learn um, that she's been going to AA meetings and she meets someone at the AA meeting. She meets uh, uh, someone played by Stephen Yun and 
they form a friendship and their friendship turns into a romantic relationship and they move in together, but it doesn't work out. They're different ages. They're from different cultures. They get a lot of like uh, conflicts coming from the people in their lives who are judging them for their relationship. You know, they met at an AA meeting. Um, he falls off the wagon. She reacts to it poorly. They break up. He moves out. That And that story just, just comes through her going through her stuff and trying to like process the end of this relationship and, and let go of it. And Judy Greer plays her sponsor, the person who gives her the book to kind of give her something to like practically do to help her move on with her life. And that's my movie. I want to say we have the other segment because there is just this feeling that a podcast can't be a single segment. It has to have multiple segments. Yeah. So we were just sort of like, we came up with an arbitrary other segment and that's why we keep coming up with new other segments every episode. Yeah. Cause it's cause the arbitrary nature of it very quickly. We realized the thing that we like doing with the other segment is just like creative writing prompts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like pitching movies to each other. <laughs> I have realized that the thing we are actually doing is we are turning ourselves into Hollywood screenwriters capable of doing elevator pitches. Yeah. That was the closest I have ever felt to actually just like, Oh, I'm, this is what it's like to be pitched a movie by a sc Hollywood screenwriter. <laughs> Um, in the like, can I have five million dollars, please? Yes, you can. Right. Here is five million dollars. Wait a second, I'm an executive. Writers don't deserve anything. Bring no. in the AI. Uh, sometimes we go outlandish. Sometimes we 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 do silly goofs and have a lot of fun. Uh -huh. That felt so much like, yeah, of course this movie's getting fucking made. Like, <laughs> like it had like you like it had more integrity to it than something like what to expect when you're expecting or he's just not that into you or uh -huh. think like a man act like a woman like oh, thank there you. are so many <laughs> self-help books that have been i have been sort of adapted into shitty like romantic comedies uh -huh. um and that was and that was just like there is totally a world like i can't believe in, in fact i know that someone bought this someone optioned that book and that one of the pitches that they received and so paid tens of thousands of dollars to a person to develop yeah. was what you just said to me. Yeah. And that was, that was a wild feeling as I was watching you and I'm like, why are we not in Hollywood right now? <laughs> I'm not saying that we're going to be Charlie Kaufman, but we could yeah. at least be Donald. Got optioned by Netflix and like, it was just sort of like Maria Kondo goes to people's homes and helps them tidy up. Yeah. And it's adorable. Yeah, for sure. So I came up with this segment, but I didn't have an idea for the segment. And okay. as I was trying to brainstorm, I realized something about Judy Greer. And this might be something that we can sort of uh, return to as we continue examining her career. Judy Greer strikes me as someone who is like fundamentally 21st century. It mm. is so hard. Like I was thinking about different books I've read and I'm like thinking about a book that uh, takes place in like the 19th century about like the origin of national parks or whatever. And I'm like... I cannot put Judy Greer in the 1800s. It just doesn't make sense to me. There's something about her whole vibe that is just so modern that I can't yes. I can't yeah. square it with like oh it's like a story about like resistance fighters in World War II or like no it isn't because it's Judy Greer and <laughs> she like she exists at the same time as the internet. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, that yeah. is that is like my perception of Judy Greer like cannot leave this century. She's a very contemporary energy to her, yeah. So once I realized that, that severely limited the number of nonfiction books that I could adapt. Um, and then I kind of started to panic uh, because, 
we now live in an era when all true stories instantly get turned into fictional narratives. Mm -hmm. And so like my first instinct was like, okay, what if there was like a Wolf of Wall Street kind of movie, but it was about Elizabeth Holmes. She's a little, she's a little old, but like, what if she got to play Elizabeth Holmes? But it was, it was that like heightened sort of Wolf of Wall Street thing where Uh she's addressing the camera. I've never seen, I guess I, Tanya is a little bit that, but like I've, uh, Something like that. When she plays Elizabeth Holmes, I looked it up. There is a TV series about Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, there's a there's a movie coming out about Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. There are three documentaries about Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> oh. So I was like, oh my god, I thought I had it. And you, you know, I have to say, it's it's funny because you you told me what the segment was going to be, and I panicked because I was like, Patrick is such a voracious reader. <laughs> I am going to look like a fool. Here's here's the thing about the nonfiction I read. It's all fucking movie shit. That's so true. so it's like do That's I true. write do I write a movie where she plays Busby Berkeley's wife? <laughs> Cuz or- I read that Busby Berkeley biography. <laughs> <laughs> like you could make a movie where you were reading that that uh, Boris Karloff biography, right? Is she Boris Karloff's Boris Karloff. wife? She could play uh, Elsa Lanchester when they're making Bride of Frankenstein. I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the not I mean the the real Elsa Lange, like Rose McGowan looks identical to Elsa Lange- oh, Lanchester yeah. in such a way that it's like you can't make it. that w- that would be good casting um uh yeah no exactly or it's like what was the <laughs> what was the last nonfiction book I read well it was a biography of Malcolm X you don't put Judy Greer in a biography of like is she play a KKK member's <laughs> wife like so I was really struggling eventually. I, I turned to my coworker. I said, you got to help me. What's a true crime thing that happened recently that has a fucking blonde woman involved? And she was like, uh, what's her name? Catherine Oxenberg, her, her daughter. And I'm like, who's Catherine Oxenberg? She goes, she was on Dynasty. And I go, what about her daughter? And he goes, her daughter was in Nexium, the uh, sex cult. And I go, oh, okay. And I looked it up and sure enough, Nexium, the sex cult? N-X-I-V-M was this like sex cult where there was a lot of horrifying abuse and there were a lot of rich and powerful people whose children were wrapped up in it because they believed it was like a life coach uh, sort of a situation. One of those people was Catherine Oxenberg, who used to be on Dynasty, who uh, wrote a book about the experience called Captive, A Mother's Crusade to Save Her Daughter from the Terrifying Cult Nexvium, or whatever the hell, uh-huh. the hell you pronounce it. And... Yeah, I read some Amazon reviews because I'm just like pulling at straws. <laughs> and someone brought up that uh, Catherine Oxenberg uh, was in a bunch of different self-help groups and did a bunch of self-help sem- seminars of all sorts before stumbling upon this thing. And I'm like, okay, well, there's a narrative there about mm-hmm. like the guilt she has about her getting her daughter wrapped up into this horrible multi-level marketing sex cult sort of a thing and, uh-huh. and like trying to get her out and the rich and the powerful and there, there's like a creepy paranoia thriller kind of a thing you can do there and mm-hmm. um and you can like draw parallels between self-help and religion and cults and mm-hmm. you know and how people find structure in their lives and all that and it's like okay that's a movie cool looked it up there's a lifetime movie there's a documentary oh, no. <laughs> there is a, a documentary tv series there's like 15 tv interviews i don't have an answer for this it's 2023 yeah we're in the girl boss era Rich dad, poor dad, but it's rich mom, poor mom. What's rich dad, poor dad? Rich dad, poor dad mm-hmm. is this was like like a like a, a huge airport bookstore book. It was a financial self help, and, and it goes on from there. Was this like, written by Owen Wilson and the Royal Tenenbaums? <laughs> what this book presupposes is that you already have a million dollars in seed money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's like it's like. Um...
Yeah, just just listen to the If, if Books Could Kill episode on it. It's really funny. Uh, but yeah, you could do Rich Mom, Poor Mom, and Judy Greer. Maybe she's the rich mom and the poor mom. Let's and she combine plays the both. other segments. Yes. Rich mom, poor mom, starring yes. Judy Greer and Judy Greer. And they're also like sitting, standing back to back with That's their arms right. crossed on the poster. That's right. Well, we have. We did it. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. Because, we did it. Because we did not do it because we have come to our third act. That's right. We have a third act. We got to go Donald on this shit. We, we got to go speed Donald. it up. We yes. got to get punchy. Yeah. We've been so sprawling and diffusive and we've like recapped the plot of Face Off. Like we got to just like yeah, tighten and, this shit up. And you, and you worked a, f- a full day uh, at your job and, and I appreciate you. You, you just kind of. I don't know where I am right now. I woke up at 245 <laughs> three days in a row and I am out of my mind. Well, I- <laughs> but it makes for good pod, and that's the important thing. That's the only important um, thing. Third segment is judilization. That's right. How did adaptation fare in terms of using Judy Greer's unique energies, unique talents, that individual je ne sais quoi, if that's how you pronounce it, that she brings to the screen, um, even in just three short scenes how does it compare to the other movies that we have watched thus far currently at number one we have addicted to fresno as the best utilized movie then we have good boy followed by the wedding planner in fourth we have the descendants then we have lolly love then what planet are you from then pottersville the cat returns and currently uh at the bottom at number nine is in memory of my father um so i hadn't come to a firm stance i think that um she plays a very similar character to the one that we see in what planet are you from so let's Mm -hmm. start there do you think adaptation does a better or worse job with judilization than what planet are you from now what planet are you from is one that we disagreed on on that episode i think she is largely misused in that i think that that character as written is too broad um to really capture the talents of judy greer i think she is much better judilized in adaptation so in what planet are you from it's it's a very similar role as i as i said you know um she's just this like playing this like fantasy for the main character. This is a much more uh, grounded and relatable performance and adaptation. And nuanced. I, I guess the, that's the, true. The specific tenor of fakeness that she gives as someone at her job who mm-hmm. is doing waitress flirting. Yeah. And and then there is that, that really subtle shift into um, the fantasy of the orchid show where, where she just has this like uh, this like lust for him, but there is this real like purity and innocence. And it's like, it's like she's completely blending in with like the, the flowers around her and then like going into this like beautiful like forest with sunlight filtering through the trees. And she's just like pure, but like erotic kind of presence. And it's not a shift that you would necessarily notice if you're watching the film for the first time but watching it again Mm -hmm. you definitely can see where it's just like fake perky waitress work sona versus like you know the idealized idealized. feminine form yeah Yeah. she does that shift so well and then at the end of it you just feel so bad for her when she's like talking to to her co-worker and just like hey this guy like you don't even see what she's saying but just like her body language and the way that she just like looks over her shoulder you die inside for him but also for her like like for like for both of them i agree with you i think that she is much better utilized in adaptation than what planet are you from so what about uh lolly love better better in adaptation she has two very funny moments 
but she has multiple funny moments in this that are again also just more nuanced more depth mm-hmm. more there's more layers going on uh, yeah i will agree okay okay that's fair so um bringing it up to uh contend with our current number four which is the descendants higher really yeah She's on screen for less time. She gets less dramatic mm. performance. But I think in terms of judalization, like I think there are a lot more people that you could slot into that role in The Descendants. And it's just, I, th- I think that the specific talents of Judy Greer are just more on display in adaptation. I don't know that you could slot an, a lot of other actors into her role in The Descendants and give them that kind of empathy that you have for her. I mean, I think she. I think it's a character that you're inclined to have empathy towards because she has been cheated on, and because she is. Yeah, but also you, you are so inclined to hate Matthew Lillard's character that I think that there's a part of going into that where, like, you kind of hope that they're both going to be terrible because then it's like you don't have to feel bad for anyone who is crossing your protagonists. And then when she turns out to be like a really like sweet person, and it seems like she's she's a good mom and just like this like chill lady, I think that there are other actors who could play that role where it, it's more about the injustice of it as opposed to like oh there's this like stranger who's being hurt as well, and you have to take her feelings into consideration with this uh, with this inevitable confrontation that the movie's building. So it's hard for me to put Descendants above Adaptation where I my general thought on Descendants across the board is just like bleh. And my general thought about Adaptation is ah. And like when I think about specifically about Judy Greer, it's in Descendants, I go, well, at least Judy Greer's in it. And then when I think about Judy Greer and Adaptation, I go, wow, all the great performances in this movie. And she also is one of them. You're right. It is very difficult to think about these movies, not only having watched one quite a while ago, but also just thinking about them just focused on her performance. Also, part of this this, uh, rankings order uh, has been uh, decided via coin flips. Um, And I wanted to ask you, Uh uh, if the Descendants wasn't there, would you put her in Adaptation above her in The Wedding Planner? No, I think she's better utilized in the wedding planner. Okay, so we are flipping a coin to decide if it goes above or below the descendants. Okay. All right, I have obtained a coin. Okay. Go ahead and call it. Heads. It is tails. Oh. We are putting it above the descendants and okay. below the wedding planner. Okay, so I, adaptation I feel like four. I... There's part of me that wants to argue for it above the wedding planner, but I am I feel totally fine with the wedding planner going above. So I think uh, that is where it should be is the new number four. When you were flipping that coin, part of me just really wanted it to land on its edge. <laughs> Maybe I'm a little punchy too. <laughs> Maybe it's time to wrap up. Well, this has been the inevitable Nicolas Cage episode. That's true. Every Um, film podcast has one. (laughs) I will say there are a lot of podcasts that have the same structure as this podcast, but about Nicolas Cage. Yes. There are probably about a dozen Nicolas Cage podcasts. We did discover that. Yes. We're the Judy Greer podcast. And I feel proud that with someone as bombastic and loud and spectacular and to the front of culture as Nicolas Cage. It's easy to say, let's build a podcast around him. I'm proud of us for looking at Alice the Waitress and going, you know what? There's something here. Yeah. So, yeah. 96 we're, careers. We're smart. We're, we're cool. We're smart and cool. Can you change the podcast artwork so instead of saying a podcast, it says <laughs> we're smart and cool? Already in the can, baby. I am so tired. <laughs> 
our next episode because we're going to do this again is the key man uh which is a crime movie from 2011 so be sure to join us that's going to be a great one you know why why we've been circling around it for a while the key man finally judy greer plays a karen judy greer is karen she's kind of karen she's a little bit karen she's giving karen in so many of these roles she goes full Karen. In She's this? Karen. I I didn't know about that, but yeah. that's exciting. That's that's gonna ooh, that's gonna be like some some, in, some whether the char- whether the character embodies what Karen means in twenty twenty three. I don't know, but her character's name is Karen. Oh. <laughs> I didn't mean to get you all worked up. No, her character. She's playing a character named Karen. Okay, well, join us next time for for Karen, a known unknown, in the Key Man. Thank you so much for joining us on this odyssey through Metafilm and Orchids and Nicolas Cage. Um, the, uh, the 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 Orchid Thief virus spreads further into us not knowing how to uh, summarize or encapsulate or keep things short. But that's Is there okay. a Wong Kar Wai movie we can rip off for the ending the way that adaptation does? Let's put the end of this podcast on a slip of paper and tuck it into a wall. Yes, all, all the notes that I have, because I have four pages of notes for this episode, I'm going to write them on a slip of paper and, and just tuck them into a wall and then it's going to be beautiful and bittersweet. I love it. Okay. Great. <laughs> 96 Greers is part of the Now Playing Network. Check out the other podcasts at nowplayingnetwork.net. Follow us on Mastodon at 96 Greers at laserdisc.party. Follow Reg on Letterboxd at Panda Bear Shape, where you can now also access the updated list of judilization. You can email us at 96 Greers at proton.me. And until next time, I'm Reg. And I'm Patrick. And, and say, say goodbye, goodbye to these. Peace us. Quizás, quizás.